Hey there, people, people. I'm your host, Martin Hawk, and you're listening to From a People Perspective. It's a podcast about fascinating professionals from the lens of HR, recruitment, and operations. Um, Today, we're taking a bit of a different approach. Uh, I've got my good friend, Andrew, on the line here with me, and he is in Malaysia as we record. So I'm sitting in a closet in Toronto. And Andrew, where are you? Hi, Martin. Uh, I'm, uh, I'm currently in the capital of Malaysia, uh, in Kuala Lumpur, uh, in the home I originally grew up in. Amazing. Amazing. And so I want to thank you, A, for taking some time to, to A, do this with me and, you know, just noticing the time difference and all the crazy scheduling back and forth, energy levels and availability and whatnot. I'm genuinely excited to to be doing this with you we've known each other for what seems like quite a long time but in in reflecting in it we've only known each other for a relatively short period of time so i think it's it's good to to start off with with where everything really begins for for you and and before we do that <laughs> i think it's also helpful to note, like I said, this is going to be a little bit of a different podcast. This is more of a podcast where the ideal outcome is that the listeners learn about someone new, um, even from the perspective of, you know, this could you could think of this as a, almost like a phone screen with a new candidate that you've never talked to before, uh, and all the work and questions are being done for you, and you get to learn about them on your own time to the point where you're so interested that you reach out to me or you reach out to Andrew directly and you say, you know what, I heard your story. I'm fascinated by it. And I'm excited to learn even more about you because we've got this position at our company and we'd like to bring you on. So I've not heard of a recruitment podcast that gets people hired specifically. And if I was writing in my dream journal or my journal or my diary tonight, that would be what I put, you know, this is a podcast or I tried a podcast where we help get people hired. So this is just an experiment as, as you and me were talking earlier, this is very much jazz. So there's no wrong answers per se, especially since you're recounting your history. So if you get your history wrong, maybe that's a different story, (laughs) but, but yeah, no. So that's the goal of today. Um, Andrew, uh, start wherever you want to begin and, and, and let's, let's go from there. Yeah. So, I appreciate you having me on uh, and letting me be your your uh, test dummy or or guinea pig for this this uh, fourth um, segment, I guess, of your podcast. Um, I think, yeah, I, I, I'm not sure if I've come across a podcast similar to what you are trying to do, but mm-hmm. uh, you know, if your main goal, as you describe, is to help someone get hired, I, you know, obviously, I greatly appreciate that. But I also think of it on two other levels. You know, considering what I expect to be the audience of this podcast, I think it also perhaps achieves the goals of allowing you to create cultural capital as a curator uh, of stories and of individuals that you actually find valuable, uh, which mm-hmm. can be quite a, a, a powerful and even sometimes a subversive act within a industry that can be quite regulated and normalized. Um, but then also, you know, in a, for the listener, the, the goal that you also achieve, I guess, um, by, by through that curation, rather, um, is allowing them to hear from, you know, probably users in the, in the way of, I guess, software people use the word users, uh, <laughs> you know, 
where they perhaps have challenges uh, with with the process or the product, which is which is conventional you know, HR practices. And so, um, yeah, I think uh, I, I'm really very much for <laughs> the idea and the concept of this podcast, and I appreciate you uh, having me on. No, no, of course. Thank you. Thank you for being open to it. So, yeah, let's... Let's and and I agree with you as far as the other points, right? There's there's definitely, you know, the fun aspect of it for me is is to be able to curate interesting stories and and capture them uh, and then present them to an audience uh, on a larger scale, and then, you know, even even further than that, you know, creating positive impacts in in other in other ways, right? So. Um, hopefully this conversation achieves all of that and, and possibly more. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I think, I think I'll begin very briefly with, uh, how we've met each other. You mentioned about this perception of, uh, I'm not sure how relevant it is. Obviously you may be able to edit this, edit this out later, but, uh, about perception of how long we've known each other. Um, mm-hmm. you know, Martin, you, you, I wouldn't say you are entirely singular in your type of relationship you have to me. Um, but it is one that I've uh, genuinely welcomed. And so we've actually known each other for approximately uh, three years when I was playing um, the role of uh, a head of strategic partnerships for General Assembly uh, for Canada. And Martin was, I believe, a senior HR manager or talent acquisition manager at Wrangell at the time. And uh, Martin, you were on a, on a list of individuals that was passed to me from the previous director of partnerships. And yeah, I, I you know it's just sort of resuming connections and um, obviously what has has transpired in that time, you know, I've attended your wedding and you've come to my home for dinner multiple times and and then eat at each other in many ways and our lives have, have intersected in, in a whole, you know, numerous number of touch points uh, in terms of individuals and instances. Uh, you know, obviously, this is a it's a, a, a quite a unique scenario for me where uh, a professional relationship, a vocational relationship, uh, genuinely translates to to meaningful uh, and intimate platonic platonic relationship, right? And so, uh, you know, I'm not sure how relevant that is, but for context, I think I just wanted to mention that because this is truly one of uh, uh, one of my greatest treasures in life. I mean, not specifically professional relationships turning into, into <laughs> but friendships in general. And, and, and sure. uh, surely, you know, surely you, you would be an individual that I've, I've uh, yeah, put in this bucket of people I'm really thankful for. So I think just wanted to share the users or users wrong, the, the listeners today that, uh, that that's sort of the context for, for, for the relationship that we have. Um, mm-hmm. And okay, so beginning. That's helpful. Yeah, yeah. Um, beginning on you asking me where where it all began, right? So I I don't really know how how far back to go. I guess it it, it can be quite interesting. I guess to share that I've I've lived in 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 five countries in four continents. I guess that's quite a nice little soundbite uh, in terms of my transient experience. Mm-hmm. Um, but but largely. Largely because of grief at a and loss at a young age, uh, my my the, the central theme of my life is is change and transience. Um, for almost any institution, educational, you know, religious, sporting, or otherwise, uh, I've 
for many years not have had a choice but to have uh, moved on and had multiple iterations of every level of school I've been to, from kindergarten to primary school to secondary school or high school, as you call it, uh, to, to even university. Um, you know, uh, what, what that brings is, is a breadth and diversity of experience, but it also, the cost of that, it, is, it doesn't allow you to do one thing um, many times over or for a, a, for a lengthy period of time. And I think that's just a very nice, uh, uh, you know, foreshadowing, I think, for what eventually becomes my challenges um, within, again, I keep using this term conventional HR practices or, mm. or, or, you know, um, or uh, being being understood and 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 named and titled and um, and valued as a as a professional with a specific vocation. So, sorry, could you remind me again, perhaps mm-hmm. um, the specific the specificity of where you want me to go in terms of my background? I mean, that's sort of a very large question that could take a long time. Yeah, for sure. Um, and and I think. It's, it's really just a matter of, you know, when you're telling your, your story of, of your, or your life and your career, it's, you know, what are the, you've already brought some really, you know, fascinating points as far as like, you know, doing many, having to deal with transients, right? And, and not necessarily having the opportunity to do the same thing over and over again to build up like a really strong skill set in that thing per se because of so much change, right? Um, but I mean, as far as from like a professional standpoint, and and we can get into this as from like a cultural perspective, and you just mentioned it is sort of like there's this need within HR and recruitment, at least in in Canada or North America, for us to categorize people, put them into a box. And if your title doesn't match, you know, if you're if the keyword does not match what my job is, then you know, despite all your wisdom and all your skill set and and all these other important aspects of what makes a person a great employee or um, a successful individual, it doesn't get considered whatsoever, right? And that's definitely a challenge that you and I have sort of talked about at times, right? So, um, you know. I, I've always been fascinated and, and I do personally have trouble sort of describing all the things you do because you're so good at so many things and, um, and I don't even understand the depth and depth of a lot of those things. I know you mostly, to be honest, is, is Andrew, uh, the, the person from general assembly, right. Who, who organizes and connects the, the Toronto tech community in, in such a charismatic, unique way, right? And that's that's my impression of you, but I also got the impression that that goes so much deeper. So I guess what I'm, you know, in, in a long way, I'm very curious to sort of understand what that breadth can oh, look like. Right, wow. Uh, well, thank you for that, that, that kind introduction. Um, wow, okay, so, I, I mean, I'll do my best. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I know, I guess, Maybe I can start with 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 why I came to Canada, um, and then go and then go from there. I, I yeah, um, more more the the latter opportunities to migrate. I think probably from the age of sixteen onwards, 
uh, largely came through educational funding. So growing up in the global south, and from a, I would probably categorize myself as a lower middle class family, um, having initially two doctors as parents, but then losing one, and then having another uh, turn to a life of the cloth, <laughs> sort of uh, really uh, 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 limits limits I guess your 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 household income, uh, and and that sort of saw me having to um, to take educational opportunities wherever I was funded, and so that started at quite a young age when I was accepted to a um, pretty established private school in Singapore Singapore called ACS, um, and then. Subsequently, again, uh, back in Malaysia and and lived in Australia for a while before coming to Canada and uh, a small liberal arts university called Trent for my undergrad that paid for my international uh, education. Um, there, I studied uh, critical theory and political theory, uh, a subset of a relatively new field called cultural studies, and also was able through the flexibility and generosity of this school to also attend art school in England, in Canterbury, um, while keeping my scholarship uh, with <laughs> school, but also giving me the freedom to receive more scholarship, not just from the Canadian school, but also from the English school. And so that's sort of the only way I could have made that work, is like multiple institutions gave me money to go be a visiting scholar in in the UK, right? And so this wasn't a regular exchange in there. Like I was doing nothing that I would do there to complete my degree in Canada. It was an entirely uh, different set of skills. And this, again, already the, the beginnings, uh, in, indicative beginnings, I guess, of even in my, again, the paradigm here foreshadowing, like, you know, what happens in my educational sort of career path uh, mimics a little bit the sort of breath of me as an individual, but also as a professional. So I went... Uh, to the UK, to generally, to, to, I guess you can put, you lump them together. There were a few schools I was part of within the university, but generally within within image and, and digital art. So this is filmmaking, uh, curation, and, and and photography. And so, okay, so that's I guess that's a general sense of my of my educational background. Um, mm -hmm. uh, and, of, and that's not a small, you know, the that's not a small feat either, right? To to have it's it's not the traditional path for for individuals whether you know um in in singapore or you know, <laughs> whether in canada right it's not something that you know it, you're, it's a small percentage of people that are sort of taking this route or or even seeing the opportunities and and being able to meet these these standards in order to get these scholarships right it's not and so to that in itself, I mean, stands out, right? And and we'll probably kind of go back to that because, you know, the, there's so much prestige put on, you know, as an example, the University of Waterloo. If you graduate from the University of Waterloo Computer Science, there's a ton of prestige and assumption made in the recruitment and HR community. Right. And yet all the <laughs> weaves and dodges and you know, scholastic three pointers that you've shot 
aren't recognized in in anywhere le- any anywhere nearly the same way right uh, on, wow. on paper or even conversationally and that's such a disservice just that the that framework of looking at things is such a disservice to the individual and to to the company as well for for them not necessarily appreciating that so i wanted to just no thank you actually you know I, I would like to go on at that point that that is so appreciated that you just acknowledged that uh Martin, thank you so much uh i i, I I think I, I very much agree with you, and I think it was a resentment that I had for a long time that I've I've already began to let go so much so that it didn't really come top to mind, uh, top of mind to to sort of elaborate on it. You know, um, you I just dug up, up an old wound. This is oh, a no. terrible <laughs> podcast. I'm so sorry. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> First of all, I don't think the scholarships I've I've received are particularly uh, prestigious. Uh, I want to just say that in, in you know to begin initially, I agree with you when you said it was a it was an odd path for someone. I thought because you meant I was Asian, uh, and obviously you have an you have a you have a Chinese wife, and I'm I'm Chinese Malaysian, and you know going to study theory is is one of you know probably a conventionally frowned upon uh, career path. <laughs> Do liberal arts and then fine arts, great. Like seriously, seriously set up for, for career success there, Andrew. Well done, you know, in the most uh, obviously ironic ways. Uh, these are on the low, lowest end of in-demand uh, roles for, you know, in the cliche standards for what uh, an Asian or East Asian household uh, or even South Asian household for that matter uh, would look like so I, I I sort of I sort of thought that's what that's where you were leaning initially when you said this was I didn't so but I mean I'll take the points for applying to both at the same time I'm sure right, right. quite quite funny uh, the, the part about scholarships I mean I don't know how re- I don't think they're particularly prestigious for some of these smaller schools I, I think uh, you know they are quite attainable but yeah I just just maybe coming from the global south that's something that I should give Trent uh, a lot of credit for and I, I just want to talk about them really quickly because that's one thing that they do that I think most schools and even, you know, again, because the HR professional world doesn't do well enough is that, you know, my grades were only one of six criterias that I con- they considered me to have excelled in. So consider the amount of time, energy, effort, structure, infrastructure, individuals, resources it would take to have to va- evaluate somebody on six metrics as opposed to one. So that plurality, right, of of understanding the value that they have well-defined uh, within what they consider a scholar uh, is something that Trent really should be given credit for because it, it is certainly not something that makes them more profitable. It's having to take way more time and energy, presumably a way more a complex uh, a system of valuation and then, then having a probably a breadth of individuals that uh, have a varying level of height of value within each of these principles, and so that's something I really want. I just want to, you know, I don't think that's really a credit for myself, but something to to give them credit for. So that's just a quick acknowledgement, you know, assuming whatever small percentage of individuals might hear this that has anything to do with Trent. Uh, just wanna just wanna say that they are a gem so, for that reason. This is a global podcast. I have over a million listeners. <laughs> <laughs> not so much that your podcast has not many people, but my tiny school may have zero recognition. <laughs> no one might even know what this school in the jungle or the forest of Ontario. The uh, forest of Ontario. <laughs> Sorry, the Ka- Kawasa Highlands. Let's be more specific. Peterborough. Uh, <laughs> Peterborough, yeah, yeah, yeah. A place that is, is dear to me. Um, but specifically, specifically to... Um, 
a problem of branded schools or, or, or feeder schools. Uh, it's quite it's quite a it's quite interesting. You you know you sort of brought it up. I, I I had a lot of resentment for a long time as someone who took a lot of pride in their in their intellectual capacity uh, and considered myself intellectual. You know maybe since my later teens uh, to then have the I guess the expectation of somebody of a certain level of privilege, but then not ev- actually having that backed up by certain financial clout or even social capital, and so oftentimes I would think to myself, you know, again, you know, you know, this perhaps a not very healthy and very privileged way that, and I if only it's a, if only I was X right, if only I, my family was richer, if only I had more opportunity. I would imagine that I would be able to play in a much more uh, difficult or, or prestigious, as used the word, playpen academically, because I wouldn't mm-hmm. have to worry about being funded. Because again, think about how prestigious these schools are, and then the odds of you then being a full scholar, assuming they even operate, a lot of them don't, uh, as international students. Um, you know, it's a very small percentile of people, but to be able to make it to to at least get into these schools and just be a regular graduate or even a graduate that did well but wasn't fully funded was something that I always felt that was well within my abilities and that I never had the opportunity to to uh, to exercise. You know, again, academics being a, a large role in my family with you know multiple higher degree holders and a couple of doctors. Uh, you know, not not just medical doctors but also you know, uh, doctors of philosophy, you know, academic uh, uh, PhD holders, right? So, yeah, you know, uh, a, a, an example of this is, is uh, and that's a, li- a life sort of life left behind and, and, and sometimes still feel envy for people who are in. And one of my closest relationships, which I recently had a chance to, to speak to in Malaysia, uh, for example, to look like what, what small odds could look like. He received the same scholarship as me at Trent. His name is... His name is Josh. A quick shout out to him. Uh, I would consider him an intellectual peer and perhaps even a mentee. And he's from you know similar parts of Malaysia as me. Went to Trent as well as, as a migrant, but he's now uh, a Rhodes Scholar. So I'm not sure, Martin, if you're familiar with the Rhodes Scholarship. Presumably the oldest, from my memory, oldest, probably most prestigious scholarship in the world. And so now he's just left to begin his second masters at at oxford's you know both both funded by by the school and so uh you know that that was you know sort of the the world that i i i i wish i guess many people do that i had a chance to to put myself to the test at if only Mm -hmm. finances you know was wasn't a problem and so josh would be in the tiny 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 percentile of people from the same social economic background as i did who would have been able to fit into you know whatever is valuable but then also be brilliant enough uh and have the right timing and all that you know if you have the right profile at the time whatever the soft social political uh flavor of the time was uh uh to to be really an outlier in how a, a historical scholarship program like that that is rooted in in colonial power you know to be able to be that outlier in 2020 to receive that kind of money like this uh, that that kind of scholarship is designed for people to you know the next people who run you know nation states to run countries who run the un global governance go through programs like this right mm-hmm. and it's not made for people like myself and so 
Anyway, just to end there about just to end there about scholarships and school, I've already you know it's quite quite a long quite a long in the podcast if we're talking so much about, about education. But uh, you know, obviously you can edit this out if, if, if no, no, no. I, there's nothing I would want to edit out at this point, or I don't think in in the future really. To be honest with you, um, the the one thing that you kind of bring would just sort of finished off on is sort of like this isn't necessarily this is not a, a scholarship for me or, or traditionally, right? So it's sort of like you're highlighting just even within the institutional side of things, there being this like systemic uh, issue of and, and access to systemic issue that goes to, to access and power and, and one's ability to, to make something of themselves and in the equality of that access, right? You literally just said, you know, I, that was not something for me, right? Um, and so, I mean, given that's being the case, um, if, and I'm kind of just tying this back to from, you know, uh, the recruitment lens. And if I'm on a conversation with a candidate and they're sort of explaining this to me, part of me is wondering, you know, A, what, what does this have to do with the specific role I'm 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 hiring for right now? But I'm not saying that against you. But then, if if you if as a recruiter you take for a minute to sort of forget all of that, right? That simple framework of hiring people, and then you say, "Well, just think of how many things this individual has has gone through, and how much harder they've had to work for for." to get to where they are just in general, if the system educationally is, is almost stacked against them. Right. So one person getting a scholarship versus another can be two completely different journeys and stories. Right. Um, and, and I guess why I'm trying to bring it back to that is it's really a mindset of, of thinking about the individual on the other end of the phone and saying, okay, well, like maybe we don't need to talk about this, but then there's so many valuable, and that's sort of the thing that's constantly highlighted with you when we have conversations is like, you have so much valuable experience that is so difficult to translate onto a page. And, and also describe in, you know, a 15 to 30 minute phone call, right? And, and that's not what this is, and I'm not expecting it to be, but that's definitely a challenge that, that HR and recruitment folks face is like, how do you extract the most important amount of information in such a short period of time? And then you're left, you're, you're left just categorizing things into the lowest common denominators as a, instead of actually appreciate. And that's always been my piss off with the entire industry to be for, to be perfectly honest with you. And I'm going on a tangent, so I'll, I'll stop, but maybe, you know, so, you know, Martin, if I you, let me let me let me really address this really quickly. Like I don't think yeah. I think this is actually particularly relevant. I appreciate you that you're giving me some space to even talk about this. So mm -hmm. so you know it, it's it's <laughs> uh it's quite interesting that you 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 know you are describing your gripes, which really is also my gripes with with the industry. Um, and it, it, you, I, I put you in this opposition, and this is kind of like calling you out a little bit. Like put you in this opposition, right? That where. You are so supportive of me in multiple ways in my life, Martin. Like, let, let, you know, that's, that's very evident to me. Like, you, 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 you definitely care about me as a, as a human being, right? Mm -hmm. uh, that's not really expected of, of uh, an average HR individual. Uh, obviously, we are, we, are, we are friends, right? And even though, even though that's the case, you have so much belief and you're always in my corner and you, 
you even give me space to talk, right? So, you, you, you know, it's not as if you don't have enough time to understand, but you perpetually admit, and it is also clearly the case in your attempts to, to refer me on occasion, which we've just done over, over the last uh, week or so, that you, you actually do have challenges being concise, right? Mm-hmm. And what you often do is you then don't really speak about any specificity of my value at all. Mm-hmm. you just more allude to it it's like you know this guy's going to be really really great i'm not going to tell you why uh, maybe i don't know how or i don't actually know why but that sometimes is really challenging too because you know um you know there could be uh something that's coded like we don't, the other individual doesn't know the you know the uh, you're the bridge to that individual i don't know what they find valuable and so really you know sometimes the, the person doing the referral really is, is doing the translation work right mm-hmm. But, but, but also, I guess it speaks to really the form in general. Like you're, you're speaking of brevity, right, of being concise. It's like, ah, how do I then, you know, narrow the value of an individual into a couple of words? If you're struggling with it, it's equally the same that I struggle with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have even much more understanding of my own complexity and value. But really what we're trying to do is to, is to silo, uh, this is kind of maybe, I, maybe a lot of HR people will just scoff at me at this, but you're really trying to synthesize and 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 re- reduce uh, a human's value. Yeah. Right. And so therein therein lies the challenge. But let me let me address some. I just took some notes there as you were talking. Right. So so why is it the case then? Right. Let's just play out this scenario. Why is it the case then? If Martin may not even fully know my value as an individual and professional, why then does he continue to advocate for me? So. On one level, you can just say that you are you are just a you are just a biased punk. It's just because you are <laughs> my good friend, and you, you know we you know we know three years is a decent amount of time. We know each other's personal lives, and whatever you value me for, whatever reason, maybe even outside of me being a professional, which sometimes is the impression that the individual might get that you're referring me to because you you speak at with me with superlatives and generalities as opposed to specificity. Right. Mm-hmm. So I don't even know why actually is this guy valuable? You know, I have to listen to him for how long to even get a sense of that? Right. But why is it so besides that point, let's just entertain that Martin isn't giving trivial introductions. Obviously, because your name and reputation is on the line, if you're gonna introduce me, even if you like me, you're not just gonna send me over to anybody, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think that you here succeed at doing one thing. I'm not sure if you do it all the time, but you definitely do it with me. So let me first affirm you, Martin. Right, you have exercised here a form. I would just assume one of the most difficult forms of empathy. Right, it's not just reg, you know, I mean, different kinds of empathy. But you, you have, you have. You talk, we talked about scholarships earlier. Someone getting a scholarship, someone else getting a scholarship from a different social economic background. What does that really mean? Right, this is the attempt to have empathy. An attempt. I, you know, you do succeed at it sometimes. Obviously, other times you don't. Clearly, <laughs> in this case. I'm describing a case where you do. If not, why do you keep advocating for me, right? So let's try to just think about this problem really quickly. You know, problems are wrong word. Like think of this, of this, you know, question really quickly. Uh, and I think it's just because you have not experienced the same things I have, right? You know, whatever as positionality in terms of being a migrant. You know, the amount of death that I've you know seen and been through, and then obviously this migration stories and the subsequent challenges. But the thing is, is the important thing, though, Martin, is that. You still believe me. Let's just take a pause for a while to just consider how uncommon 
and what a great service it does for me as a human and as a professional. For that one very simple fact, Martin. You believe me. I believe in you. You believe as in well as as sure. as. Maybe subsequently that means that you believe in me, right? Like, and I, this is interesting. Kind of, you know, you talked about, you know, becoming a man of the cloth, not yourself personally, but it's it's truly. I I belief ultimately leads to faith, and so I have faith in you as an individual, and I don't have necessarily proof. And it's it's almost very. It's interesting because, um. It's been a roller coaster of the last five minutes just because, A, you, you, you objectively said, I'm going to call you out here, and I appreciate that. And you're right. And I think what's interesting, if I'm reflecting on the situation, is the typically the language of referrals between professionals is exactly that. It's superlative, right? Oh, Martin believes in this person, right? And I've taken referrals from him in the past and they've been great, right? So it, it's, it's the simplification and it's no longer about the individual to a certain extent. It's the trust in the individual that's vetting the other, the other person. Because, and I think this is a part of the reason, and I'm not saying any of this is right. I'm, I actually think it's, it's very broken. The whole thing is broken. It's been broken for a very long time. But if we're operating in this world, I, it's, it's, it's how, you know, it, understanding the language of how things operate in order to make an impact within it is, is key, right? So, um, yeah, no, the, it's difficult to understand how skilled people truly are, especially as a recruiter, because you're doing, you're doing the first introduction, right? Oh. I love that so much. Let, let me let me let me respond to that really quickly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, okay. So you know, this is really you know, if we, the most important thing as a critical theorist, you know, when I think about you know creating an ideal system versus trying to trying to to benefit from it, right? Like or, or try to work with it. You know, you talk about giving that referral is almost like oh faith, like oh you know I work with this individual before. In your case, you know, you and I we we work as partners before. Mm-hmm. You know, host for me at a hackathon, I friend. And you you can at least speak from you can at least speak from experience. A lot of referrals mm-hmm. can come from experience, right? It's like, oh yeah, I believe in this bloke. This guy's a good bloke. You know, already quoted in that is that like, you know, it could be, yeah, this is my fellow white dude. He's going to be great. Or this is a fellow man. He's going to be great. It's actually different forms of in-group favoring that are happening passively, right? And I think most people don't actually want to confront the idea that that's exactly what's happening. You know, they think networking is neutral. But networking isn't really neutral. You know, there's such acute and obvious ways to which power and privilege are replicated and, and passed on to in-groups uh, that I think the primary reason why people don't, you know, sort of like be blatant that clearly this is a replicating of power, of hegemonic power, you know, really is because one, it, it breaks one narrative uh, of, you know, the history of evangelicals of, I think, the West in general, which is that it is a, it's a place of meritocracy. It assaults meritocracy. You know, to say that, actually, you know what, I actually hired that dude because some other white dude told me he was going to be great. <laughs> right? Really means that, you know what, you didn't actually qualify him. And most jobs don't really need that much qualification to do an adequate job. Not to find the best individual yeah. or even the best candidate. Yeah, yeah. You know, especially at the lower levels, you know. Yeah. And even, even managers, we don't really need, you know, 
you don't really need the scrutiny to find the best individual, the best individual, unless maybe like whatever you're some Fortune 500 or DevOps class company that claims that as their culture, or even consulting company that's claimed that as their value prop of, of employer branding. Like besides that, like honestly, so many jobs don't require that, and that's why you can get away with it. But the second mm-hmm. part as well is is you know this idea of like trusting individuals. You know, it also largely goes against, I guess, what most DEI people are preaching today. Um, yeah, and, and, and I, I think, you know, there's multiple other things. We were talking about the paradigm here, and it also really sort of assaults the role of a talent acquisition, a search, a HR individual. I think it does. If we put that out blatantly, that's the primary, primary, and if, I haven't done any empirical qualitative or quantitative research on this front, but it is the primary reason how people get hired. People reference this all the time. Oh, 90% of jobs, an invisible job economy, aren't posted, no JDs. Like, really what we're talking about is forms of nepotism, right? Forms of representation mm-hmm. of power. And so, yeah. and so, you know, that really assaults, I think, the role, the, the, the status of what a HR individual has played and ought to play and does play. And it's like mm-hmm. a difficult and painful introspection to admit that is super humbling it's probably me even sharing it right now probably is already going to rub a bunch of people the wrong way uh you know i mean it should <laughs> well that this is also the challenge this is also the challenge of networking is is you know when we think of business goals think of we think of growth hacking even even in the form of of how we do that in terms of social engineering martin i think one of the reasons again talking about the empathy earlier right that I've sort of been drawn to you is that I don't really have to do that. Meaning that what I would regularly do if you were a different stakeholder is I would think, what does this guy need? What does he find valuable? Then reverse engineer and then give you and feed you the answers that you want so that I can then by default achieve my goals. Think of what that does to integrity, not just in the professional world, as human beings. Right? Think yeah, I mean, we're seeing it play globally. But, you know. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> I mean, that, you know, I, I want to put such a big attribution or causation, you know, to like this being, a, you know, the, our problems with integrity and trust globally, uh, you know, with, with, with governments, with media, with the other side of the political divide, yada, yada, yada. But, you know, probably no coincidence also that we're, you know, describing very, very similar patterns of behavior, you know? No, absolutely. There's the, the process of hiring has... The, think about the metrics that most tech companies use. It's speed to hire, speed. Mm. And so the age-old, uh, you know, business adage of you can choose, you know, out of these three things, you can choose two, but not you can't have all three, right? So it's price, quality, and speed. Yep. Right. Yep. And so if 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 you're thinking from a recruitment perspective, <clears throat> if you want speed. Uh, then, then you'll have it, but you're you're not going to have uh, price, or you're not going to have quality. You lose out on one of those two things, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and 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 so people are incentivized realistically, even even further when you have to bring on a recruitment agency and you have to pay them some exorbitant fee to bring on talent because you can't find them because you're swamped. Um, <clears throat> They're also under the gun because you're not going to pay them if you don't find, air quotes, top talent within, you know, 
within a speedy amount of time. So then you're saying, okay, I'm willing to pay you a lot, but I need this person fast and I need them to be high quality. Yeah, yeah, well said, well said. So, you know, herein, herein lies really, you know, the challenge about, it really relates to the, the conversation we've really had about pedigree degrees, right? So, you know, the temporality, the speed, the pressure that every HR and such individual is put under to find a role, you know, this is where our empathy for, for them and for you comes in. It's like, I understand that. You know, it's mm -hmm. the sort of, you're not deciding that for yourself, you know, and you then have to find pockets of humanity, which you have attempted to do, and us being friends is an example of that. It's a and very good way of saying it. Pockets of the amount of space that you have, right, Martin? So, yeah. you know, I, 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 I get that. And, and, and it's, what, what I guess is surprising a little bit to me is that how infrequently I see diverse, a diverse model, don't even talk about diverse individuals making those decisions, but a diverse model. So it's like, you know, if you think of like, you know, any sort of belief that we have, usually it's like sort of like a, a, you know, even like a political party or something, like usually you have like some kind of offshoot. Like, so this is like the second, the second most popular position or something. Yeah. But this is so ubiquitous. Like what we're describing, the speed, temporality, our philosophy of, of, of search, of HR, being of talent is the, being almost, it's like it's, it would have been a needle in a haystack to find something that is converse, that is an outlier. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and, and most of them don't leave much space uh, for humanity. And so because it's so much speed, just to come back to the point about that again, you defer value. You defer value. Actually, you're not making choices about value. You know, you're making choices about someone else. You're actually an, you're, you're making choices about aggregation. If you think about it for a while. So I don't actually know how good this, this guy is, but he went to, he got a degree from University of Waterloo. So you deferred the yep. application to yep. something else already. And that's why the value of the degree at University of Waterloo is higher than it is at other, right? Of course. Of course. Because there is this, there is a moment, it's, it's, it's smart for a business, right? You can't blame them, right? There was a moment in time when BlackBerry was insane and university and strictly out of proximity, that's where it came from. And they rode the coattails. Don't get me wrong. There were actually talented people doing incredible work there. I'm not trying to discredit that, but they ride the coattails of that success for so long. Right. And, and Oxford probably does that to a certain extent oh. and, and every other university as well. And it's, it's, there has to be some sort of consistency to the quality of education at a university, but to say that it, but you're still deferring it. it it's, it's very much a brand, right? And in that brand lies all these assumptions. And so if you hire someone from university of Waterloo in Oxford and they end up not performing or meeting expectations, you know, what does that do for the, does that do much to the brand reputation? Maybe to that individual who remembers that specific instance, but absolutely. You defer the impression of an individual to the names of the places they've been to and the companies that they've worked at. The same, the same goes for companies as well, right? Just because you've worked at a small people, also for people, right? So we just talked about it, right? Mm -hmm. Universities, UN companies, but you also talk about individuals. Really, you're also just branding each other Based, based on who's referring you. Mm -hmm. I mean, and you're really preaching to the choir here, right, Martin? I seem like <laughs> I, I, no, I, I currently run, co-run a brand strategy consulting company. I mean, the, the, what is, what, and so the engineering that goes into coming up with all your assets that make up a brand and what actually is followed through with that brand, really, not only is there 
obviously usually a consistent gap, but not consistent is the wrong word. Like consistent meaning that there always is a gap. Mm-hmm. Think how it's sold or how it's sold and what actually it is. But then also in some instances, if we think of true cost and value to then product, how much of it is just brand you're paying for brand equity? Like, you know, like good example is like any sort of high fashion label. I've been like, we're talking, we're talking like 18x to 30x, you know, the, the sort of, <laughs> the sort of uh, uh, you know, cost to true cost, like retail cost to true cost. Like that is totally manufactured, arbitrary. Mm-hmm. So how, if we think about a product that's like slightly more understandable, but consider what that means for human. Yeah. Yeah. It means the value that you're, 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 you're deferring could be up to, I don't know how many X level, the X, X the extent of what actually is a value of individual and consider what sort of prejudice that brings to the, to the decision-making capacity and model of the average HR individual. Absolutely. No, I mean, preaching, I think for our users, we'll call them that today maybe because we've been on a trend of that, but for our listeners also preaching to the choir, I think the one thing it's refreshing to have this conversation for me and I do want to get back to you, but I appreciate that you're making space for this. It's refreshing because we don't talk about it, right? Because we don't step back and say, this is how the world works. Rarely. Right. We, we say, well, the world works this way. How do we operate better in this world? Versus taking a step back and analyzing, is this even right? Is this even moral? Is this even actually accomplishing the goals that we want to, right? Top talent to us is an individual who has gone to a a school with a fantastic reputation and worked at companies which have global brands that might or might not actually. And that's, that's the biggest challenge for, for recruitment is assessing, you know, the actual skills and knowledge and abilities of an individual. And yet so much value is just dumped into these things and you can't blame people. Right. I mean, you can, (laughs) you should, but, but you can understand why you wouldn't blame them directly. I suppose. Right. 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 So yeah, no. Um, where do we go from here? Right, we're digging in pretty deep to to, to some things. Um, did you did you have anything more to say on this? Or uh, you know, you know, I mean, sorry, I feel yeah, I've taken a lot of your time. I mean, uh, on this point, I know, I, I yeah, I was able to get a lot a lot of my chest there and 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 dropping <laughs> a couple of times there. Yeah. No, no, of course, no. I I just you know in again kind of you know. Even still, right? There's so much to, to, like I said, kind of understanding you. You're to me, you're still Andrew from General Assembly. I don't know Andrew. Oh, yeah. I I don't know Andrew the photographer as much as I'd like to, right? Um, and we've known each other for three years, right? And you know that, and and I don't know as much about Andrew um, and his understanding of fashion um, and and truly how deep that goes. I know it exists, and I think. You know, what's what's unique, and this is kind of going back to that point, and maybe I shouldn't, but, like, why someone might put value in something and and not go deep and do the investigative work is that you have proven, without being asked, that you know so much about so many things 
to me that I trust that I can refer you. And I also trust that I don't even know how to categorize you because you, in, in my mental model, you know, so many things about, and it's, and as well, even just conversationally right now, it's a marathon for me. I'm it's not, not in length, but in, in, in keeping up with, um, your vocabulary. And we've talked about this in the past and I don't necessarily want to get into, into it, but in speaking with you, I, I'm already, I'm already, you know, huffing and puffing where I, I look at you or I listen to you. And I know that like you could do two or three ultra marathons in the desert when it comes to your lexicon and, and vocabulary and me, I'm just, and it's fascinating. And that's another thing that's I, sort of like my brain in it's biased way categorizes you. Andrew's a super smart guy. Right. And and I have no problem introducing him to, to other people because of this, that, that, and there's all these, you know, levers and switches and toggles and things in my mind to say, okay, I'm comfortable. I'm comfortable doing that without actually having it seen, having seen it firsthand. Right. Mm. And so, you know, and we've sort of dissected the anatomy of what a referral is for me, at least, right? And we've also just dissected sort of the the anatomy and the problematic issues of of referrals. From it is literally a there there is a dark and scary hole with anything with you know with power is you can go down a very scary path of nepotism, it can go down a very scary path of corruption, um, and so and so. Yeah, no. So much actually. Can I can I just respond to that again? I mean, you you're always you're always bringing up um you know prompts you know, and so just by just by you you know dialoguing there, I really there's something that that is of value to me to to respond to. You know? Sure. Yeah. Um, one of them, you know, you first off, thank you for again. You see, always so flattering, right? Like, uh, you are very flattering. I I, I actually I genuinely believe you because I really I, you've said it to me so many times. Uh, you know, especially reference to intelligence. And also, obviously, my own biases, right, and potentially arrogance. I do see myself as an intelligent individual. But let, let's consider your challenge there, and let's just take a quick paradigm of, I'm not sure if you've been in this scenario before, but it's certainly one that I find myself in all the time. Uh, you know, part and parcel of a lot of loss and transience is actually having lots of mental health challenges uh, and having seen a therapist as young as the age uh, of 15, 16. And so it's now, being a veteran of, of, of therapy, it's now very obvious when I go into uh, a room of a psychotherapist and you can discern in a, a reasonably short amount of time whether this individual has the faculties, the capacity, the wit, the speed of thought, the extra intelligence, right? The emotional intelligence to be able to tell, tell the lies and discern the lies I tell myself. So if I tell myself a lie, then I'm telling him a lie, telling them a lie, correct? Mm-hmm. But if they're not intellectual peers or seasoned enough, how are they able, able to tell? So if we think about that being an average problem for me with psychotherapists, and what the anecdote you just gave me of you running a marathon and this being a casual, probably a reasonably casual conversation for me, um, I, ask, I ask as well, is who is doing the valuing? Who are these talent acquisition people that I'm meeting? And do we have a model that actually equips them to, to evaluate talent like myself or talent in general, if you would argue? Mm-hmm. 
right? Isn't that an existential question that, that I'm, I'm, you know, that, that I'm bringing up in the way that we've segmented labor? <laughs> no, no, I mean, absolutely. So I, I, keep going. I mean, I, I'm not sure if, if, if that I, posed, I posed that question well enough for you or not. Well, I mean, well, maybe not, but uh, maybe I didn't understand it. It's likely I didn't understand it. But realistically, um, I mean, how am I going to come up with an answer for an existential talent acquisition question? Let's go back to the paradigm. Let's try to let's get let's try to get you back to the paradigm of the uh, or the anecdote rather or the or the simile of the of the psychotherapist. You know, so the psychotherapist has to be able to be at a certain level as the individual that they are counseling mm -hmm. to be able to discern when someone is in has trouble or not, uh, uh, whether they're lying or not, they're being truthful or not, uh, whether there's something's an outlier, whether there's a pattern. They have to be able to discern. So with you saying that you have a lot of faith in me, but then you oftentimes, you know, you, you say you might not even understand something or the, the breadth or depth of vocabulary of concepts or of, of, of whatever that we, we, are, we, are, we are we're speaking about or may not be something that is intelligible to you. Can you imagine? Let me ask you. Can you can you not imagine that that might be a, a common position that someone else in the HR space might come across when they come across me? Is my question. Absolutely. Yeah. No. You know, so like the very another simple mm. adage is like, oh, you only, you only can love as much as you know love, but let's just substitute the word love for something else, like talent can, or skill yeah. or aptitude or intelligence. Yeah. It's a perfect example if you think in terms of the challenge of technical recruiting, right? Mm, uh, very obvious example, right? But but that one is very specific to to skill, correct? correct. Mm -hmm, right. Yeah. It's like I I don't have the faculty to assess whether or not someone is a good developer. So what do we use, right? And when I say we, I mean like talent acquisition people that hire developers, right? Well, we have conversations with other developers, but a half hour to two hour conversation with a developer still does not give me the ability to magically assess someone's whether or not somebody can use Node.js or JavaScript in a in an impressive way, mm -hmm. right? So, so we revert to stories, and I think that's what's that's what's interesting about this is this is a long story about Andrew, right? Yeah. And yeah. Um, but that's what we were we like at the very core just knowledge being transferred between two human beings it's storytelling that's how how you remember and and so it it and this i found this early on as as a agency recruiter was the better story you could tell of an individual the more likely people would want to talk to the candidates that i would present to them mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. and and so you're you're hacking effectively biases within the system so that you can so that you can present the candidates that you've found, right? And it's not some sometimes it's not even um it's not even so much as whether or not they have the skills, it's whether or not they have the most interesting story. Yeah, fair. And then people and, and people are getting hired not because of their skill set. And and I can and you I've heard it I've talked to candidates who are so frustrated and so talented and yet their storytelling ability is absolutely shot mm. and and it's a it's there's a it's it's almost it's it's so not common but I've heard it enough times that you could almost label it right 
It's like, here is an individual who is so talented, but is, is just unable, doesn't have the faculty to, to express their talent in a way that, um, that captures the other person on the phone, especially if they're not on the same level. Right. So Martin, um, let me put you on the spot here. All right. Uh, I want to first acknowledge be the first time tonight. <laughs> 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 let me put you on the spot again. Shit. Sorry about that. Oh man. Oh boy. The roast, roast Marty podcast. Oh my. Oh man. Goodness gracious. Sorry. I just trying to make the, I just hopefully just, no, 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 no. By all means. I'm, I'm kidding. Content, I hope, I hope I imagine it's interesting content because it's really, really un. This leads to good things. <laughs> hopefully for both of us. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Okay. 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 Uh, so, so obviously, uh, my own bias is that, you know, I keep describing an idealistic world, right? You know, I, I think I'm pushing too much for, you know, people who want me to uh, understand me and appreciate me as a human being. But really, you know, HR individuals are just an extension of the goals of a corporation, which is I have a specific need, fill my need. Why do I need to care about you as a human? I don't. I just need, I just need to fill my needs, right? So I want to acknowledge that bias. And then I'm going to put you on the spot here, right here now. Uh, about what you just described, about your insight as a agency recruiter. Mm -hmm. right? And so you mentioned that some of the most talented people you've come across are, you know, fried with frustration because they, they have failed, essentially, to tell a compelling story of their lives. And it's kind of, I think, ironic that we haven't actually spoke about my professional uh, experience at all so far. But that, that aside, for the specificity of this podcast, but let's talk about me in general, you know, yeah. You, that just acknowledges my my noviceness as a podcast host no, no, no. Just and not staring the conversation back to what we're supposed to do. And, and it's a, it's a, for those who can can trudge through the the extent of the of the podcast will 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 we'll find treasure, I'm sure. But but uh, but the question then becomes for you about me is how do you qualify? or rather rate, maybe let's use the word rate, give me an appraisal of my ability to tell a story about myself. Right. And so I don't know if you felt as you don't fall into that category. I think you do a wonderful job of telling your story. Um, and so you, if your concern was that like, oh, Martin, you're, I'm I'm in that bucket. I don't see you as that 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 type of individual. Um, I was speaking more in terms of uh, in just you know the frustration of people who who are very new to Canada who don't have a full blown grasp of the Eng English language yeah. and are just genuinely not able to. And it's not just there's also people that have a wonderful grasp of the English language um and are just not able they they've never told a story they stick to the facts they read their resume from you know almost verbatim and and that doesn't stand out what does stand out because our brains are wired for it is the folks that are able to tell stories right um and so when if i'm giving you a rating from like a storytelling ability um no, I would I would give you a pretty high rating. So so then and and we've talked about uh, we've talked about this in the past. Is it's just the only challenge. If I'm being you know critical and if I'm going to put you on the spot, my my my, the tables have turned. 
is is in it it's your your ability to tell a short story versus your uh, interest and and passion to tell the full story yeah gets gets in the way uh or may get in the way of of being able to you know do that elevator pitch and by all means you i'm sure you know when and how to employ air quotes the elevator pitch but your your natural demeanor leans in towards being the person that needs you know you know a friend a mentor of mine had a had a joke um and he would come up to me and he's a gruff you know um older gentleman and he would say you know oh, i just got off the phone and you know you asked this guy what the time was and he explained to you how to build a watch right and and when all you want to know is is it 3:15 or is it 3:30 because I'm going to be late and instead the person the person goes on to say that well first you put the leather band on but you have to make sure that the leather is is sewn correctly etc etc you get the point right um, but and but that's not that's never been that's never stood out as like Andrew man you really got to take care of this right this is really hindering you, but without question, you lean towards where, I mean, we're doing a podcast right now in, in long form, right? So, oh, well, said. I think that's a very, very, very accurate observation and appraisal. Uh, I, I, I think that to, to push back a little bit on the story of the watch dude, because I think, uh, on absolute terms, that is just spot on, mate. Like that's so accurate. Right. And the term that you sort of, were about to say and then gave the analogy instead like a concise term that i would use is complexity that's what i lean towards mm -hmm. complexity or even comprehension like a fullness right and you use the word natural attitude correct it's not that i you know as a consultant oh my goodness i come into the board room and i know uh if if i have to play a, if I put on a tie i put on a tie if i need a hair vote, a dude with white hair I, you know i get to do with white hair if i need a white a white a literal white dude i'll get a white dude right so it's not about this inability to discern the context like the guy with the watch right but it is also this interesting like stubborn stubbornness of like trying to not repress this element of myself and so mm -hmm. I, I give you then a really quick anecdote if you don't mind going allow me to go into this because it has again touched upon the important prompt for me <laughs> it's the prompt of complexity so come back to the, the story of josh again okay mm -hmm. uh, malaysia just experienced uh, just like most of the world, but much more militant than Canada. You know, we had our own version of the lockdown, which was a lot harsher, you know, three months in, in the home. And right after the lockdown, uh, Josh was back in Malaysia uh, between his masters. And we got to see each other in Malaysia for the first time. We went for lunch. Um, and we, anyway, we we're just exchanging stories. And uh, he, he, he's the one who gave me that vocabulary, right, of the word complexity. Andrew, you lean on complexity. And so do I. And in the, the the context of this is him talking, me talking about my envy of him playing in, in the Oxbridge and being a and being like you know a road scholar, telling him about the envy, like to remind him that we are no longer you know academic peers anymore. Because he keeps speaking to me as a peer. I'm like, no, we're no longer peers, mate. You are in an entirely different ecosystem now. You know the people you rub, you know the email the email thread that you have is you know whatever listserv that you have is you know 
some of the most powerful people in the world, and I have remained more or less where, where, where we, we last left off, right? But then he then returns to me to say that, that he, his impact, and we're talking about praxis. This is, again, this is me already giving you context you don't really need, but we're talking about trying to live out our values in the world, okay? Live out our ideology through action. And mm-hmm. he says that his, his own impact and level of uh, subversiveness and radicalization is very low because he's in the insular uh, and low-impact world and non-radical world of, of, of education, of, of academia, right? And, and so he says that he's envious of my diverse professional experience, so trying to have stuff in application. So he then, we end the conversation with him asking me essentially about what my experiences are like. This is always this grass is always green. I'm, I'm just describing mm-hmm. it. Yeah. And, and for him, he's like, mate, I have so much envy for you. You've worked in three continents now. You know, you obviously had a diverse breadth of industries that you're in, and I've never worked. He's only been a professional academic. Yeah. Consider that for a while, right? And to fast forward the conversation a little bit, because again, I'm being very verbose, I end up uncontrollably in tears when talking about complexity. He prompts the word complexity, and that one word, you know, leads me to a... I, it's, you know, it's a very simple understanding of being touched, right? It means it was something that was repressed and it was made visible again by him asking the question. And he asked me essentially, hey, why is it like to be a, why is it like to be a complex individual in the professional world, right? <laughs> I'm already, uh, can, already a little bit teary now as I recount this conversation. Actually, I'm not sure if you can tell across the phone or not, but... Um, you know, and I said to him, you know, there are three, it took me a quick, you know, it took me maybe a couple of 30 seconds, whatever, 15 seconds to pause, to think about it. And I said, you know, there's three, there are three things, uh, three uh, responses I've had, uh, not even consciously, but, you know, in reflection about being mm-hmm. a complex individual in the world. One, I am alienated for it. It's not well received. Two, by explicit and implicit cues, I, re- I repress it. I repress so much of what makes me complex and by default, singular, unique, valuable. And then the most painful, the most painful and emotional one to share is that there's all this self-policing I'm describing, right? Mm-hmm. In Indonesia, you, you self-police, you self-repress. But really what's also obvious to me is that I've been actively punished when I attempt to not to repress myself. So to be myself in the professional world has equated to being punished, to self-repression, and to alienation. So that's my response to you about that prompt, about what it's like, oh, what's it like to be complex? Essentially, you ask the same question that Josh did in a different way. And why I actively, what it means for me, existentially, but also in this battle of values, for what it means to try to convince somebody to speak to me as a human, and equally I speak to them as a human, is much more than the immediate goal I have at hand. Yeah. Consider that for a while. Think of what battle I'm playing on here. No, it's it's uh, 
mental acrobatics of un yeah unbelievable mental acrobatics right because there's this i can only imagine you trying to find a balance between that but even that balance is is still throttling so much right well and, and in the ideal world i i wouldn't have to repress myself mm -hmm. exactly <laughs> Casual laugh, yeah. No, thank you for sharing that, man. No, you're welcome. I don't have a specific prompt, but uh, I have another. I have another thing that I can respond to actually uh, about the hiring process. I think I mentioned earlier. That I had an anecdote I wanted to share with you, um, but I don't know. Let me. Maybe you can. I can say the anecdote, and, and you can ask me any other questions you may have. Uh, uh, if there's something in your list of linear questions to ask. Well, I mean. Why don't we do something a bit more traditional, right? And and when we were talking before this even started, you know, I joked about how, you know, you know, there is that sort of me just assuming that there's so much greatness there, but only knowing a sliver of it, right? And so I I, I always genuinely have been fascinated. So like in if we could do like a a, a trip, you know, geographically and professionally of, you know, well, these are all the things I've done and these are all the things that I, I do. And kind of going back to, you know, knowing you as Andrew is from a general assembly, like what happened before that? How did you get to, to general assembly? And not necessarily, you know, what you did in, you know, really, really big terms, but, you know, leaning into some of those things that we just um, effectively denounced being you know titles and company names right. industries right 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 okay i see what you mean so you kind of want like a, essentially this is the cv right this is like the hey tell me the all the different places you worked in and what did you do sort of scenario right yeah no maybe maybe that'll bring up some interesting prompts for myself that, that oh. i'm just genuinely curious I, can I imagine that you will just learn stuff about me uh, 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 that you didn't know I mean, how, I mean, how granular do you want me to go i mean uh genuine question like uh, yeah, no, I, I'm, I mean, for a week, you know, uh, you know, to my best of my memory, like, let's do the, the, the snippet of the, of the CV and then we can kind of go back. And if anything pops out, uh, uh where it makes sense to zoom in on for whatever reason, like let's, let's let yeah. it flow organically. Sure, 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 sure. Uh, so, I mean, I, I jokingly start off, I'll, I'll give you an example of maybe what I'm looking for. So for myself, my first gig. I uh, had a paper route <laughs> and then I went and my next gig was, you know, I was a dishwasher at the university of Guelph and I did that for a summer. And then I decided to go to a cottage instead of showing up to work and they fired me. And that was a terrible decision, I'm sure. And then I dropped out of school and went to, uh, you know, um, and, and the, there's a Canadian program or an Ontario program, uh, that I'm failing to remember at the moment, but ultimately it was subsidized my wages for an employer, and I worked at a you know a farm hardware store kind of thing. So like that kind of level. Right. Um, That's awesome. Yeah, I can do that. I can do that. Thank you, Martin, for giving me the the sort of the template. Um, you ready? <laughs> you ready for this life? Give it. Give me your life. Uh, yeah, it's not super complex to be honest. I I I, I started uh, work. My first professional role 
probably quite quite late. Uh, I imagine around 17, 18, uh, again, honestly living a reasonably privileged life, you know, in, in, in Asia, uh, I didn't really have to, I'm not, I didn't really have to contribute economically. Uh, I just had to be independent at certain ages. Mm-hmm. So, 1718, probably my first thing, my first two types of roles in college before university, because we, we go to college before university, um, was on the entrepreneurial side. I, I had probably picked up a camera for two years by then and was able to convince <laughs> all business owners to hire me as a photographer. So, this is the first leanings of a career path while I was in college. Which, again, for people in that in the kind of college, it would be uncommon to have someone work as well as study. Uh, but that's my first memory, uh, you know, shooting a couple of restaurants. I even had my first book cover at the age of 18, a small book uh, about, again, things I care about, including even at that age, about schizophrenia in, in Malaysia. Uh, and I had the writer reach out to me not only because I was a budding photographer, because I, was, I would have been affordable, I imagine, but also already then, someone being able to discern that I could then connect with uh, a very unique subject in a short amount of time. I'm already taking too long. So let's, let's just leave that. Along with that, I also, now that I'm thinking about it, also played the role of my first time being an art dealer, which I'm only just remembering now. Uh, <laughs> I would go to an antique market, find an illustrator, uh, who drew popular characters like Transformers and Marvel and DC, pick up something, and this is an incredible margin at the time, like, but small amounts, uh, but maybe buy something for a dollar to three dollars and sell them as high as $50. So incredible ratio of returns, but you know, not making it rain, making it, but not super sustainable in that. Like that takes a lot of labor. Okay. Okay, moving on, moving on, moving on, coming to the university, um, staff photographer at a magazine and then staff photographer at our local newspaper uh, connected to the school. Um, I did, oh, this is the one where I, not super great, I did club photography, um, you know, like taking pic- pictures of drunk people, supposedly having a fantastic time uh, <laughs> uh, and looking smashed so that they can see themselves on the screen so that you know, the other people will come and have an equally amazing time. <laughs> there was that. Um, I interned at a design firm. I was a then move on to film a production house uh, in Canada, uh, a production house in a summer in London, in 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 England, um, doing mm-hmm. live concerts primarily. Uh, in in Canada, it was primarily doing advertisement as well as editorial work, uh, really working out of a, a, a known sound studio, I guess, an audio studio, you know, uh, and they do audio talent as well in Peterborough, but then they were venturing out into, into video production as well. And so uh, they got me on board for that for a couple of months or four months or so. Um, and then fast forward, I think that's all the stuff during university time uh, from my memory, outside of like some stuff in admission. So again, the gregariousness and being able to speak to crowds element made me, uh, and then being international, being a scholar, da 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 da, made me a good individual to like, I guess, evangelize for the school. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I'm sure there are other things in between which which aren't that consequential. I'm trying to fast forward a little bit because I I kind of verbose. Uh, my first job out of 
um, university was I only did it for a day. <laughs> so at a point, I had no more support for me. Only did it for a day, and it still gets on the list. Yeah, because it's such an outlier, and, and I shows my privilege, honestly, as well. Uh, it still makes it on the list because it also impacted me greatly uh, in terms of context. I worked my only kind of like harder labor job uh, or blue collar job, really, to be honest, um, then. And I, I was working at a sauce factory, and I had to stand, I guess, for the first time in my life, I had to stand for a whole day or whatever. And at lunchtime on that day, I got a call from Bombardier for my first professional role. So I left <laughs> next week. <laughs> but but uh, I was desperate, right? I was like, oh, I'll take anything. So like working yeah. in a factory in like Markham or something. And I, I recall almost sleeping. I was, this is how like, you know, absolute terribly low level of physical grit I have, to be completely honest. <laughs> I'm humble with you is that I slept for almost two days, two straight days. I was like, <laughs> on the floor. And I remember like, I remember like asking the foreman, like, why can't I sit? I feel this, like it matches the height of the assembly line. Like, why are you telling me to stand? It's like, I don't know. The bosses want to stand. We just got to stand. <laughs> I just remember like not being able to accept obedience for the sake of obedience. Yeah. So uh, for anybody who's joined us for this long, they're immediately eliminating any standing desk budget. <laughs> or rather, more importantly, the takeaway is that doing stuff for no good reason. I think that's the bigger, that's the more important. Yeah. yeah also no standing desk for too long. Um, True. And then so, but then I then was able to become kind of wild first job, quite a, quite a high paying first role, which only lasted about three months because it was a consultancy gig. Uh, for a company Bombardier partnered with called Flying Colors in Peterborough. Uh, they do probably one of the best, if not the best, you know, sort of private jet, private jet servicing company uh, in Canada. Um, and I was a... Now, now I could argue that it was actually a D&I role, to be honest. Like a diversity and inclusion role. At the time, I didn't have the vocabulary for it. So I was like a communications consultant slash translator slash interpreter slash gave cultural context to executives for them who just acquired a hangar in Singapore and were then beginning a training program where they would begin this pipeline of individuals being flown over from Singapore, highly skilled technical laborers to then be trained with the Canadian context and specifically the, the SOPs and standards uh, within, within Flying Colors and Bombardier. And so I helped the executives sort of give them cultural context of Singapore um, that, while so, someone who spoke multiple languages, right? So I spoke all the languages they spoke. So Malay, Mandarin, right. and English, which was the different individuals that were coming from Singapore. And, sorry. And how me. does one, no, I'm sorry, I interrupted, but just piquing my curiosity and, and, and how did that opportunity come about uh, with it? Right, Andrew's browsing Workopolis or Monster or whatever it was at the time, and in click, here's my resume. Here, guys. Nope, uh, it came in inbound in a very similar scenario. Uh, yeah, I, I had an advocate. So a a hmm. Peterborough's biggest integration community was reached out to by so they are a not for profit reached out to by the for profit Bombardier and Flying Colors, and. They then referred to a director, and I, there's this one director who, similar to you, uh, I've known him through uh, professional uh, as well as like sporting means, 
And he's like, oh, there's no better interview. You should, you only need to interview one guy. And, you know, I didn't really... I've got the guy. Here's the guy. Yeah. So I had no competition for the role. Essentially, again, you could argue that that wasn't a very inclusive uh, process. But then the great irony here, of course, is that that's the only job ever in my life that I was in Canada for that I got hired for the ability to speak what is the mother tongue of the average Malaysian. <laughs> so I guess Canada can take a small win there. Uh, like no other time have I ever been asked to know a reasonably esoteric and uncommon language like for a job opportunity. Um, but yeah, that tied me over for a while, and then I had a, a maybe a period of unemployment. Um, in the meantime, I was so this is where the fashion stuff comes in a little bit. It was already an interest of mine. I was then creating content for a Finnish. Uh, fashion label, uh, writing, writing uh, at the time doing social media and content, content and community management, uh, which you know barely got me enough. This was this was this was, this was like a tough days post graduation and not being able to, you know, having the tension of like needing to find a role immediately and having a limited time to find a role, and then perfectionism setting in like needing to find the perfect role as opposed to like just getting an internship which would have probably been a better idea because I could have just graduated to a junior job which would have qualified me for my residency but thinking that I would never leave the intern job I didn't even consider what entry-level jobs would look like in that way um anyway um and then fast forward maybe so what okay one other thing the other time also my art practice was growing so I was able to travel, I guess this is like trivia, people only care about professional stuff, you never know what is relevant, right? So this is my challenge of what to exclude. Um, but yeah, I, I remember selling a triptych in an exhibition in Boston that paid for my final two to three months of living before I got my first real sustained professional job. When I say real, I mean it qualified me for residency, uh, Canadian residency. Uh, and that was really cool. So that was the per- the people, the design firm that I interned with at 18, also of the many cool things that they do, they also have a traveling art show uh, about spirituality. And so I was invited to be a contributing artist. And I had at that time already contributed two or three times, but this is the first time that I sold in traditionally a non-commercial show because mm-hmm. my... <laughs> my fr- truthfully, it's because my frame was too expensive to, to, to then go from Boston to Bangkok. And so the cheapest thing to do was to sell it. <laughs> but it was also such an incredible achievement for me like to be in an actual proper, proper commercial gallery and sell something mm. at the rate that I decided it should be sold for. So it wasn't a tremendous amount of money, probably like 4,000 Canadian dollars or something. But like that... Massive achievement as an artist. What? I can't believe I've just done this. Like, how have I done this? And I was only mm. there for the opening. I was only there for the opening and it was the only thing for sale. So somebody came and bought it on the first day. Right, like it was such yeah, you, you used to buy things for a dollar and flip them for fifty bucks, and and here you are, you created something that's four grand. That's massive. Thank you. I mean, I haven't done much on that front since since I entered the professional world, which is another conversation. But thank you for your for your encouragement. Um, yeah, to be honest, that that consequentially was a big deal for me. I think one to feed me because I was really desperate, honestly, but also I think it just gave me that lift, that motivational, mm. existential, emotional lift. For then what to describe, yeah, as my next segment, right? So at the time, again, how I'm making money, I'm making money through like freelance content with this Finnish company, little bit by little bit, little bit by little bit. And then suddenly, wow, a little bit of buffer, 
by getting this sale, right? And then Leatherfoot Open, which is no longer around, uh, is a community, part of a community of people that you talk about fashion a little bit earlier. Uh, this is the only part of fashion that I'm very well versed in, uh, know a lot of people in the industry by. And interestingly, all before I even entered the industry. And so this industry is called classic menswear. It's only about 12 years old. It's basically a resurgence of a belief in true value, uh, in being unconcerned for brand. I know irony as someone who runs a brand strategy consulting company uh, and really open to craft, right? To craft standards, uh, to, 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 to workmanship, to artisans, right? And so to small batch, it's almost like a, you know, it's like the small batch sort of movement. It, it, you could, it, this could be kombucha or this could be, this could be craft beer, but in this case, it's tailoring, right? Mm-hmm. Making or milnering or whatever that, whatever the craft. And so, knowing who the individual behind the the tools is, and I mean, it, it has grown since. So obviously, there are many brands, but yeah, you basically you know your supply chain is more or less understood. You know how much the fabric costs. You know, it's very transparent in that way. You know, if you if you care to look at the lid, which uh, you don't need much to to find out. And so, yeah, it's quite cool to know your true cost, right? Like, you know where your money's going, you know the individual you're feeding, right? It's quite a powerful uh, sort of, like, capitalistic and commercial experience. And so this is where uh, my kind of Canadian professional journey... Oh, my gosh, actually, I've already missed out a bunch of stuff. Let's, whoops, sorry. Uh, there's one key industry I've completely neglected, which is, which is the world of Hollywood. Oh, man, sorry. So before I started my first professional job... Uh, Casual forgetting about Hollywood. Casual forgetting about Hollywood. I'm so sorry because I didn't end up being able to work in Hollywood, right? So, because I, I have Canadian rest, I had a Canadian work permit. I couldn't go back to with my employers to LA, and so I worked at TIFF uh, for three summers as an industry member. Uh, once for a distribution company, so these are people who buy and sell the rights for films. Uh, which remember that's what TIFF ultimately is for. It is a trade show, uh, as much as it is a community festival. You know, TIFF just does a very good job of making it um, inclusive. Um, I did red carpet press for a season. Uh, meaning, yeah, this is this is the one that I guess when I was younger, people were really envious about. Which really doesn't mean much if you're in industry and you're meeting like superstars. You can't really gush. You know, you, you can't really show. You can't really show you that close. So, I mean, I've met like people like Scarlett Johansson or like, you know, Hugh Jackman, Terrence Davis. I mean, I don't know, whatever. These sort of contemporaries, Reese Spoon, these sort of contemporary stars uh, on the red carpet and occasionally in, in like social settings. But really, um, yeah, you know, I, I, I sort of played the role of either asking questions or developing questions to ask or, or doing some form of interviewing uh, behind camera or behind the mic. So uh, that was a season that was quite fun, not necessarily rewarding, but quite fun. Um, and already, yeah, 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 let's just leave it at that. And then, and then, and then the last one for, interestingly, things of name dropping, interning for what was the head of what we now know as Amazon Prime at the time. So this was just before they launched their video streaming platform. And I, you know, met the guy that ran the show and was his intern, uh, which was really cool. He was here on a book tour, uh, as well as promoting, uh, some education along what it means to be a good producer, an ethical producer, and um, and his name is Ted Hope, by the way, and uh, also promoting something called oh man, it slips my mind right now, but essentially uh, a not anti piracy coalition at the time, 
And so you can see the, the links there, right? Anti-piracy leading to SVOD, oh, sorry, a sub subscription-based video and demand platform. This is, this is the advent of Netflix and now we have Peacock. Mm -hmm. There's so many options today, but at that time, it's a simple insight that we were going on is that if people had access to the shows, they wouldn't steal it. The problem is they don't have access to the shows, the content they want. Right. And so anyway, I was helping him with that campaign. So yeah, sorry, I, I, that is a kind of a cool thing to, to leave out. I'm sorry, I, I, I do feel proud of having worked uh, in that space and you know yeah it's 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 quite a quite an eye-opening uh, and can be kind of glitzy you know the parties and stuff uh part of the experience yeah. and the thing that stands out to me is in hearing all of this a it takes time to properly explain right and if you were to in in and going back to sort of the initial thing is like to explain your experience there's this and, and I'm talking about how things are broken, not, not you know, what an exciting A life to have lived so far. I know we haven't even gotten through everything and gotten up to, to where we even met. But if we're talking about the challenge of or the problem of traditional recruitment is there's this fascination or preference towards finding candidates that are just, you know, all they have is only the experience you're looking for, right? Versus the diversity of experience that, that you have, right? And it's, it's just much easier for me to pick up a resume that says software developer for the last 10 years and feel confident that this person is going to do well versus software developer who just graduated from a code school or general assembly oh. in the last three months and has been X and Y and Z in the entire alphabet before that and, and just dismiss all of those experience immediately, right? Oh. And it's just... There's, again, commenting really just on the brokenness of it. But when you have the opportunity and you pause and you take sort of, and maybe this is what our users slash listeners today can can uh, take from this is if you if you pause and you, and you give more time to the people that you're speaking with, you might be able to uncover experiences that might completely alter your opinion of, of their skill set and their ability. And if maybe they're not the greatest storytellers, and that's not your case, Andrew, but if they're not the greatest storytellers, maybe you can help them tell them stories for themselves. Right, 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 right. There's a consulting element there, yeah, right, or coaching element there, for sure. I think Sorry. And, uh, really great recruiters do, do, do do that, though. Right. And, and I, I don't want people listening to think that that's what I do all the time because I'm just as guilty as all of them. Right. It would be nice. I would love, I think if, if anything, this is a great branding exercise for me, but that's not the case. Majority of the time that doesn't happen just in, just out of, out of necessity. So, but anyways, going, going back to. He's an, know, honest, man. He's an honest man. Coming back to <laughs> back to the timeline <laughs> so here, yeah. in, here we begin what i would consider rather let me rephrase that here we begin what the canadian state considers canadian experience because <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> everything has that's, so many things that described it's, that's that that word is underlined and bolded for so many individuals right that is getting your canadian experience is such a massive thing but think of yeah, how much work I've done already in Canada before. Exactly. 100%. Yeah. Right. Wild. To me, genuinely wild. Um, and so my first role 
really, really eluded me, right? It took me a long, long ass time to get. I applied for whatever, easily over 100 jobs. I mean, what, much more than that, you know, to be honest, the amount of networking I did, da 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 all the referrals and all the things you need to do. Uh, hopefully, most of them I tried and I, I failed. And at this time, it, it, okay, coming back to the classic menswear space, it, is, it can be quite snobby because it's not very accessible. Um, I don't know why. It's odd because it's hard to name drop anything because unless you have this specific interest, you probably don't recognize any of these brands or individuals. And you also don't recognize why they're valuable or even more oftentimes superior to probably everything that the average individual. I don't. I don't even mean this trivially. I mean this totally, seriously, explicitly, right? Mm. Uh, uh, objectively, uh, of higher quality, durability. Uh, you know, of 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 you know, of ethics of the of of, of payment of the labor, whatever. Uh, maybe not as sustainable. On some occasions, something like Patagonia, or something could win on that front, perhaps potentially, but. Anyway, I think the average individual may not be able to discern the difference. And so it's hard to even talk about that. It's, again, it comes to a field. It's like, how can you believe me if you don't know anything about the field, right? Mm -hmm. So yeah. anyway, I went to what was a very ambitious project um, in Yonkville. Uh, a company had just uh, acquired a Victorian mansion, uh, four-story four Victorian mansion, and converted it into a store and company. So there was an e-commerce space. There was a showroom. Uh, a hat maker was there. I, we bought over a shoemaker, bought over a hat maker, bought over a talent tailor, and then had still had ready-to-wear uh, shoes and clothes as well. A uh, bunch of showrooms. Really, really incredible project uh, along this space. Very progressive for Canada, which knows nothing about classing menswear or, or really of like high-quality tailoring, to be honest. And so a lot of risk shots fired. Yeah, absolutely. Shots fired from from someone who's been in the industry, right? So hopefully with some sure. no. from position of, uh, of, uh, no. of knowledge. And I mean, it's not in your history, so it's not really can't really blame you guys, you know. Oh, it's, not, <laughs> it's not in the history that you've continued to adopt. You guys had a thriving garment district uh, just downtown. It's just you just entirely left it behind. Like there's almost nothing there now. You know, that's, yeah, that's where the tech community works now. <laughs> yeah, true, true. I was going to say, that's just the evolution of, of the priorities of Canadians, right? So uh, not really just making an observation, I hope. Um, no, no, no. Yeah, so this first role, uh, I, I want to tell the story of how I got it. You know, this is really my first introduction really, really to how power works. You know, like the person that owned the place was exceptionally wealthy, someone who owns like Mining, a mining company, resource extraction company, hotels, telecoms uh, in multiple countries around the world. Um, and yeah, part and parcel of this is a very, can be very, he ran it in a very elitist way. So really the whole stick was like your proximity to him and the tailor and the brand. Like the closer that you are to him means that you know, you've earned the right, sort of this like earned the right to be in that space. The whole point is about exclusion. I know this sounds really, really awful, uh, but obviously they are like just innocent bucks like myself who just come in because they're interested in the clothes and the shoes, right? But really, this is the game, okay? And so I go to I go to the first event where the most famous writer in the space has just flown in from London, who's launching a doing a book signing. I buy a book. I, I you know I have a good time with people. I make some friends. Uh, one of which, at the time, I did not know. Uh, but one of which is this young guy who complimented me in my clothes, who's wearing, you know, the best tailor that's alive today. One of the top five tailors in the world. He's like, he's wearing a $15,000 suit. Okay. Um, Martin, you with me? Yeah. Okay. 
And uh, I did not realize this at the time, but I had just met Leatherfoot's biggest client. And this guy has like uh, easily a seven-figure um, wardrobe budget every year. Um, and okay, so that's that, right? And so I had been speaking to them and yeah, no opportunity. I didn't even think of working then. Then there's the second book launch. The second most famous, like maybe a month later or two months later, the second most famous writer comes from Paris. <laughs> so he launches his book as well. And this time around, I get along not just... And some of the same faces show up, right? You know, it's a small community. But I really get along with the writer and his wife. And they're much older than me. They're in the mid-50s. But, mm-hmm. but we get along along the lines of, not of, again, of this game of power and politics, but along the lines of, for the first time, talking about shout-out arts, arts degree holders, we got along, like, in a, in a I don't know, we say in a heart level, in an impactful and meaningful way, along a, a French philosophy, you know, and, and that being the foundation of our outlook on life, but then, by default, also our interest in clothing, in tailoring. And he is a, in the space, like, when I say the second most popular book, I mean highly, highly influential, right? And he had wrote, he had wrote a piece on his on his one of his blogs about about the state of young individuals coming to work in this resurgent industry which has a lot of stigma like being a shoe salesman has a lot of stigma it's like oh that's a dinky that's a dinky job right but then this this rebranding this re retaking reowning of what a craft looks like our relationship to clothes and fabric he was trying to help rebrand the space essentially so i reached out to him and said was there anyone he could introduce me to um, and simultaneously, I was having a conversation. I saw that really, you know, this guy who rolled in on a Rolls Royce. I didn't. I, I just know he was rich. I didn't know that he was Leatherfoot's biggest client. But I also was asking about whether he had he knew anyone that could hire me, or if he could hire me in any of his. He, like the owner of this company, also owns a, a bunch of stuff. Okay, it's like you own so much stuff. Like maybe you have a role for me. You know, I just sort of asked quite quite openly. And what you got, man? Sorry. What you got for me? Yeah, what you got for me, exactly, exactly. And I know I'm taking a bit of time here, but yeah. I'm just going to try to finish this story because I think it is consequential of like shaping my Canadian experience. Martin, I hope you don't mind. Um, I would have I would have cut you out if I did, so don't worry. Um, and so they then both come up with the idea of, of asking independently, asking why don't you work for, uh, for Leatherfoot? And I said I had no desire to work in the clothing world, um, but they said I would be happy to speak to the owner for you, right? They both said that simultaneously. And the owner, again, is, and I already had been speaking to them. They are notorious for like not answering your calls, for just like, again, you're not powerful enough. You have nothing to offer me. I won't even entertain you, right? Yeah, so I, I probably haven't even had a word with the owner. Maybe he's just greeted me. Because in front of house, he'll be very polite. He'll be like, yes, please come, right? And so the first person uh, referred me, and I didn't hear anything. But then hours later, the second person referred me, or maybe the next day, the second person referred me. And then within like 45 minutes of the second referral, I got a phone call from his lawyer. Uh, basically, who's also his henchman, I guess, who's like, I'm ready to set up a meeting with you. This so-and-so wants to set up a meeting with you. Can you be here at X amount of time tomorrow? Yeah, and that's one of those calls where it's you just you don't you don't just like oh I can't make it that's not a situation. 
<laughs> yeah, super nervous. I mean, that's the whole illusion of power, right? Like you, you yeah. Okay, that's why I've learned one of my greatest quick pitch about myself. You know, one of my greatest skills that people never ask about, which I, I will argue, maybe I'll give you the final anecdote at the very end about people asking the wrong questions. But speaking truth to power is truly something I take a great amount of pride in, right? Um, you understand the phrase, uh, Martin, right? I mean, to an extent, but I mean, why not explain it? Yeah, yeah, really, really essentially saying that I, I, I can be honest, be explicit, can be constructive, can be straightforward with someone that is significantly more powerful than I am, who has a disproportionate <laughs> level of power to me. That's a huge skill. I, I wish I had a, an ounce of that skill. It never comes up. No one seems to care about this, uh, which is which, which I, I would argue what makes me a very, very good consultant. Because I tell a exceptionally powerful CEO, way richer than me, way more established, way more connections, highly educated, whatever. And because I don't value his power and wealth, their power and wealth, in the same way they value power and wealth, it's not a risky endeavor for me to speak my mind. Yeah, there's the, the okay. And I learned no. during this experience as well. So anyway, okay, this is the first example of me pitching for my job. I come in with an eight-page document the next day saying, this is what I'm going to do for you. The day after that, I sign and I have my first professional job. And I cannot believe after almost a year of like precarious labor, this is how I end up getting my role. Not in the field I want to, not a junior mm -hmm. job necessarily, I started as a brand manager uh, and with one that uh, didn't exist. I had to just make it up. I just made it up in eight pages. Right? Yeah. And the laundry list of positions that you were probably applying for in between that. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. And so there was a great irony and like it was a bit unbelievable. It was great relief. Um, so, so in short, what do I do? You know, I, I guess I'll just talk about what I'm doing there. I, I did, uh, I guess most of their comms work, their branding work, uh, worked with all, we had, we had a lot of outsource consultants. Uh, I helped with their buying. So choosing uh, what gets made, what, um, I'm sure you understand that, right? Uh, what gets made, mm -hmm. what gets brought in, mm -hmm. uh, uh, into the country to be sold. Um, I worked on the consulting and a little bit with uh, the designs for the actual tailoring, but in the, 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 the most of my work was, I guess, lumped in the, the realm of like stakeholder management and, 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 and marketing, right? Um, so yeah, that was my first job. We finally got to our first professional job. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then I would say things didn't end well, where there was some challenges with cash flow, but it's, again, it's, it's interesting, right? It's just one of those things about uh, you know, working with a private business that has such high volumes of money coming in and out, right? Like the cheapest pair of shoes in there, you know, would range, I mean, like maybe it's like $650. And then the most expensive pair is like, you know, $20,000, right? So like, it can be very polarizing sort of like, can you imagine, right? Like one person comes in the shop and he spends, you know, they spend six, six or seven figures, you know, that could make or break like a quarter or something, you know? Uh, mm -hmm. Anyway, 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 anyway. So moving on, uh, I leave that role with some, again, speaking truth to power was a big element of that, like disagreement with uh, how certain vendors were treated, yada, yada, yada. And I think I can speak about this openly. I, I don't feel any shame. Uh, in fact, I feel quite proud about my, my values today. At the time, I was quite fearful 
um, because it was also the first time I, I witnessed what real, real power looked like. Not just to do with hiring, but I mean like, you know, like even like, oof, I don't know, maybe I can't go into much, too much detail here, but like, you know, as, as retribution, like someone being able to convince the government to stop a resource extraction project in another continent because there's a dispute about a small amount of money, something like that. Yeah. It's like, to me, that's absolutely wild. I'm like, if you can do that, what could you do to me if I've wronged you? You know, I, I left with yeah. the feeling of fear. It's like, what? This is the type of people that I'm rubbing shoulders. With. I have no idea. I have probably no idea what you're capable of and what you have access to. It was frightening, right? Uh, towards the end. And so uh, that company is no longer around. Um, and, um, and then I moved on to my first role in technology. Uh, and so far, you've heard everything I've talked about. I've not mentioned technology at all. And so similar to that, I also pitched my second job. Um, and I can name the company now who's doing, to me, absolutely no surprise, doing absolutely excellently, not phased by COVID-19 at all. Uh, they are called, uh, the, yeah, the registered name is called Sympathical Intelligence Systems, but they are now they are best known for their, 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 their product. Uh, their, their flagship product is called Smile CDR. Um, they are a started off as a AI powered and it's very technical. Fire, which is a FHIR, is a standard of health healthcare data and and security uh, level um, clinical data repository. And so the people who co-wrote this standard are the same people who ran this company, who started up this startup at the time. And it was a very interesting mix of individuals and I was privileged to be employee number one. Um, we have the lead architect of UHN. I mean, oh my gosh, you have some of the most bloody talented people in health tech in Canada working on it. Uh, you have another individual who, I can't, I can't reference this role at the time, but essentially just believe he's a CIO, so very, very skilled. Then you have one um, money guy. Oh, sorry, rather, you have one uh, uh, CEO type, and then you have two VCs who run firms who are just putting in their own money. So you have super well-backed, and you have the people who literally wrote the new technology releasing its first commercial product. Like, also an incredible introduction to the tech scene for me. Um, I joined them just before the stage of commercialization. So pre-commercial to commercial, that's when they started hiring people, right? And they just hired me as like an all-around, again, this is when being a generalist helps, right? And I hate the word generalist because it seems I'm not specialized in anything as opposed to specialized in multiple things. But, mm -hmm. yeah, uh, you know, being a quote-unquote generalist here really helps. So, you know, I could do fun and development, uh, which you may or may not know about. I'm pretty terrible at it. Um, could do some technical writing, uh, and then you could do content, you could do partnerships, uh, you could do data work, which is like, again, sifting through a bajillion contexts that we've adopted from all these really, really powerful individuals. You know, and so it's a very different startup from like a young guy trying to like have this as a career as opposed to uh, getting a job. These guys, you know, the money guys all have this as like, this is one of my, it's like Constellation Software, you remember that company. Like they go in and they, I mean, essentially it's just like, a VC or private equity model. Really, it's just to, to make a bunch of money and sell after a bunch of years. Similar to all the tech dudes, 
um, who are these you know, people who literally wrote the standard, uh, it's kind of like a retirement plan. They sell this and they, they can retire, right? That's how mm-hmm. they expect this company to be. And, and fair enough, it's like imagine, imagine having 5G, uh, being the people who wrote 5G and then coming out with the first 5G product. Everybody else behind us in the same space is going to be X number of time since Smile Subsidiar came out. Imagine like having been that kind of pioneer in whatever space you're in. It's absolutely incredible, right? And I would say also was a challenging experience, um, but I learned such an incredible amount with having exposure to the individuals I did on a daily basis, right? Like my average colleague is a C-suite slash VC, which to me at the age of whatever, how old I was in my, at the time, uh, in my 20s, uh, mid-20s rather, sorry, um, it was wild. Uh, it was one of the single most, so demanding and so challenging, and what, but one of the single most empowering, ultimately in retrospect, experiences I've, I've had in my career in terms of learning, right? Mm-hmm. And that led me to be able to jump a few rungs in my next role, which is where I met you uh, at General Assembly, um, where in short, the title was uh, Head of Partnerships. Um, but my role, I had, again, I enjoyed it because I had multiple, I obviously had a lot of freedom and discretion. I only reported to the CEO. But really, I also enjoyed it for the breadth. So I had multiple portfolios, Martin, as I'm, I'm sure you know. Um, where I met you was like on the hiring front, which is like convincing you know, other executive stakeholders um, about why the value proposition of a bootcamp is valuable, right? So that was one portfolio. Uh, second portfolio is like marketing, community partnerships, uh, which yeah, can be anything, you know, we was able to partner with like some highlights involved, like partnering with Google or, or, or Square, Weebly, like some of these like massive companies to like doing more community-based stuff, which like, you know, I was interested in design and like, you know, I ran a, a with you even, like you kind of hosted for me, like, you know, a design-based hackathon a couple of times. Like that was really all like a design meetup that I also co-hosted every six weeks or two months or so. Like those were really like enjoyable and rewarding parts of the job, like the community aspects of being able to help mm-hmm. profits or community-based work uh, with the city, for example. But then the part that brought in the most revenue really is like bringing in, and again, this is the part, the only part that people would care about, really. <coughs> Excuse me. The only part that... Uh, a recruiter would ask me about. They wouldn't even give a rat. So I asked really about the other two. Um, but what brought in money, right? Which is me uh, playing a consultative sales role for B- for General Assembly's enterprise initiatives, which most people know General Assembly as a B2C company, but really that's actually a, a minor fraction of their revenue and what made them eventually profitable before the acquisition with Adeco. And so part and parcel of me was bringing, my role was bringing in this type, parts of the business into Canada. This meant accreditation. It meant consulting uh, on the digital transformation front. And, and as a portion of that consulting, really playing a role of pre-sales for large-scale upskilling and reskilling. And by large-scale, I mean like, you know, four-year-long engagements, like thousands of people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so this was by far also the most exciting part of my job because, and the part I think people don't recognize when they just see the title head of partnerships, right? <laughs> Within this one job alone, it's like you have no recognition of how diverse 
the of roles were, which is why I took it, right? But like being able to give you an example of being like like Walmart, like being able to speak to all their SVPs and their C suites, you know, about something like UX design, which they had very little knowledge of at the time, you know, and I'm being able to, so so I go in usually as a consultant, right? But I go in, I partner with someone else. And I partner with someone else who's like a rock star in their field. So I'm kind of like the suit. So I talk about business goals, which I'm very proud to talk about. And like, again, something I would flex, but no one even recognizes that when you look at the word head of partnerships, right? You probably don't even recognize, you probably even realize this is part of my job. I, Martin, I wouldn't be surprised if you didn't even realize that, right? And so- No, I didn't. Yeah, you go into, you go into, you go into something like a boardroom like that. And you basically kind of do a show and tell for either, you know, maybe a day, two days to get them warmed up to the idea. The ultimate goal is to pass them on to, to a, you know, some kind of, ex, you know, executive account director or something in, in New York who then sells them something else. But what I'm concerned for is this that change management element and education there and then of very, very powerful people. So like my favorite, let me just give him a shout out as well. Um, my favorite consultant that we just had a, Again, so much more senior than me, but respected me greatly. Such mutual respect for each other was the head of media for the NFL. Like, imagine, like, what a massive role, like, someone flies in from LA every time we have an engagement. And he's the rock star, like, you know, he wows them with his anecdotes of all the startups he's bought and sold and da 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 da, da And then I keep them on track with their business goals. So, like, that was the, 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 the complimentary relationship we've had. And Wow, I mean, I've, I keep talking about this job like it's such a great job. Oh, my goodness, I mean, there's a lot of challenges with it as well, but that <laughs> got me going. Yeah, it was such. In some ways, it was quite high stakes, but it really showed what another real, really like a super powerful skill I have that I would like slab on if people want to say you want to hire me for one thing. Like this is one of them. High level, really, really high level executive stakeholder management, right? And then that translating potentially you can do that as a pre-sale or sales activity, but also you can do that as a consulting sort of uh, 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 engagement, right? And so being able to truth to power, yep, is part and parcel, high level, of course. Yeah, absolutely. No, I mean that that's a skill you would absolutely need. And wow. Yeah, yeah, of and course. high levels executive stakeholder management. And if we're talking about superpowers, yeah, right? Exactly. And and I think just in, in hearing this and having this conversation, my challenge with you has always been, you know, how do I describe all the variety of things that you do when I think in theory, you know, just you, we talk about, you know, the functional resume versus the chronological resume, right? Where it's like, I worked at these companies for this period of time, and this is what I did. And and I've just been looking at, at that's how I look at every individual in their in their resume to a certain extent that the functional resume isn't very popular, but when you do have a lot of experience, the functional resume is these are my skills and you lead with your skills and the companies you've worked for are a footnote, not really, but you know, in comparison, the, the, the weight is on the the functional skills. So, um, remember we respond to that as well. Actually, I wanted to come full circle to this eventually at some point, because you mentioned earlier, you really sort of hyped me up about my intelligence, you know. So let's just talk, let's go back to the boardroom again. Obviously, my intelligence and cultural capital carries a tremendous amount of weight when I'm talking to a C-suite that's 30 years my senior. Yeah. Right? Of course. It's like if I can have any conversation because I've experienced so much of the world and of life, it's requisite to be able to speak at someone who's 30 years your senior. How can you catch up to them if you don't have those years? If you're not 60 years old yourself, 60 years old yourself, right? Mm-hmm. 
but how do I say that out loud? And I talked someone else is someone one of the interviews I'm having is at, at, at Deloitte, and you know one of the senior directors, you know, because I, I I could tell very quickly that we had value alignment, so I could be honest, which is a very very rare opportunity in in my HR processes. To be honest, it's always deceit or selective. Not deceit is the wrong word, but like selective information, not being myself, repression, right? And he's right. like, I can imagine how you could never say that your greatest, because he discerned for me my greatest skill set. My, my mentor, my primary mentor would say this as well, who is a, a high-level executive coach, is that it's my wit. It's speed. It's abstract intelligence. It's speed of thought. Right? It's putting me on the spot. It's like I can come up with something like, like, you know, with, with immediacy. Yeah. But you can't no, it's a- that. How can I sell it? Even on a, not only on the element of it being an odd thing to sell on a resume, but also you mm-hmm. see like an absolute, like a joke off, like, a, like an asshole. You see yeah, like no. the level of arrogance are you to be able to say, yes, I'm good because I'm so bloody fast. Like, who, <laughs> who is going to take you seriously? So few people take you seriously. But and yet it's so true though. A real, right? real superpower, Martin. That's like a real superpower. I know this confirmed by it so many times by people I respect. I know this. I proudly would say it to someone who believes me. Okay, but you've got mm-hmm. to believe me though. If you don't believe me, then there's no point. No, no, that's fair. Sorry to interrupt you. Please go ahead. No, 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 no. I mean, I think that that makes the, that, I only had that point to add as well. So if we're going about um, where, where you're at. So you're at General Assembly returning the story. <laughs> okay, sorry. I'm almost done. I'm almost done. I'm so sorry. Oh my gosh. It's almost a two-hour podcast. There's going to be so much editing for you. I'm so sorry. Okay. Okay, okay, okay. My- I'm not going to edit a single thing, to be honest with you. Oh my gosh. A two-hour podcast. Merry Christmas. All the best. Anybody who... <laughs> this is a fascinating story. And I mean, no, it, I most people will drop off, right? If if we're just thinking of conversion rates. At some point, somebody's going to be like, I got I to gotta wash my dishes or walk my dog or something. Or actually, no, those things are perfect podcast things. But this this is meant to... You're, you're meant to go for the long haul. And I think we've learned so much and talked about so many oh, fascinating boy. things already. But I mean, if, you know, you turn the tables on me a few times, but like, there is that, and and there is this weird, like, it's good that you don't repress it. But like, if we're talking about like the challenge of trying to like, extract the entire life experience is so, it's, it's, it's difficult, right? Because there is so much richness to all of it. And I think what's probably difficult is you there is value in that richness and you don't want to skip over it. Why glaze over it? Right. Why jump from profession to profession? This is my title here. This is my, this is, you know, this is the country I was in. This is the title I did. And this was the the job. And in one sentence, this is what I did for the job because there's so much more to it. Right. As you described and proved with director of partnerships, everybody might assume this, but nobody would imagine that a director of partnerships was sitting in the boardroom with Walt, Walmart executives and 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 uh, the chap that you partnered with, right? Yeah, and that's just one story, man. I mean, just one of exactly, right? Isn't that like so? Even you tell me the challenge, I really have appreciated. Like, I thankful, thank thank you for like giving me like a little bit of validation there because, like, if I have challenges just describing one role, as in like, because someone might say, yeah, just give me your most recent roles, but even then, you need to give me a little bit of time, you know, like, yeah, and that's not even telling you my most recent one because the most recent one is the most diverse by far because I'm the most powerful in that relative to all the others. So maybe I can end with that if you don't mind. No, yeah. I mean, I end my, 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 my history anyway, you know, uh, Martin, if you don't mind. 
Um, yeah, absolutely. So between that, I, I uh, something you know, I'm just gonna mention it as well. I no, it's just Bob. I'm, I'm not gonna mention. Okay, so I spent a little bit of time shooting my first solo photography exhibition uh, between my general assembly job and job I am transitioning out of right now. And right now, again, the titles are totally arbitrary. I guess I'm a director of strategy and insights, but I'm really a, a, a limited partner. That's probably the best understanding uh, or a junior partner, however you want to, however what legally to use, uh, at a reasonably old, so almost 30-year-old brand strategy consulting company in my original home of Kuala Lumpur. And... Martin, I really am slightly worried about how long this thing is. Maybe we can annotate it or something if you need help with that. But I mean, the richness really begins of what richness can look like is what this whole look like looks like for me. And I think you have some understanding, but I also think you will learn some stuff about what I do here. Are you ready? Always. Okay. So my current role... Uh, what does it mean to be a limited partner? Limited partner just means that I am, for me specifically, I'm pre-buy-in to the options that I have. Uh, this company's been around for a while, so they offer a lot of assets. Again, Asians kind of stereotypically like buying property, so we own a bunch of property. Um, uh, anyway, uh, but really, in effect, it means I'm also responsible for PNL uh, duties. Uh, it means contributing. I mean, yeah, contributing to making sure the company stays alive and how much profit we make. Uh, what kind of engagements we take on, but also equally as importantly as a consultant uh, doing a senior role, I also do the sales element, which very specifically I'm concerned for is also recommending the service mix, right? Meaning consultants, consultancies are selling intangibles, which means I get, to, I get to decide really what those intangibles are, how they should be segmented, uh, who comes on board and how much they should cost. Which I think is... Again, even if I think of conventional HR people, like that's a super important part of my role here, which may not even come across as a director of strategy. You know, it's like yeah. that's frustrating. You know, it's you gotta have nuance, right? Like you don't recognize that this is this is really a, you know, this is an entrepreneurial role in that way, right? Like it's it's being responsible for feeding, you know, whatever, double digits of people, right? So okay, the core work that I do is branding, right? So the easiest example of that is like if you think of a Landor or an Interbrand, I just do that in Asia. I don't have a specific prompt, but uh, I have another I have another thing that I can respond to actually um, about the hiring process. I think I mentioned earlier that I had an anecdote I wanted to share with you. Um, but I don't know, let me, maybe you can, I can say the anecdote and, and you can ask me any other questions you may have uh, uh, if there's something in your list of linear questions to ask. Well, I mean, why don't we do something a bit more traditional, right? And and when we were talking before this even started, you know, I joked about how, you know, you know, there is that sort of me just assuming that there's so much greatness there, but only knowing a sliver of it, right? And so I, I, I always genuinely have been fascinated. So like in... If we could do like a, a a trip, you know, geographically and professionally of, you know, well, these are all the things I've done and these are all the things that I, I do. And kind of going back to, you know, knowing you as Andrew is from a General Assembly, like what happened before that? How did you get to, to General Assembly? And not necessarily, you know, what you did in, you know, really 
really big terms, but, you know, leaning into some of those things that we just um, effectively denounced being, you know, titles and company names right. and industries. Right, right, right. Okay, I see what you mean. So you kind of want like, a, essentially, this is the CV, right? This is like the, hey, tell me the all the different places you worked in and what did you do sort of scenario, right? Yeah, no, maybe maybe that'll bring up some interesting prompts for myself that, that oh. I'm just genuinely curious. Right. And I imagine that you will just learn stuff about me uh, uh, that you didn't know. I mean, how, I mean, how granular do you want me to go? I mean, uh, genuine question, like, uh, yeah, no, I, I'm, I mean, for a week, you know, uh, you know, to my best of my memory, like, let's do the, the, the snippet of the, of the CV and then we can kind of go back. And if anything pops out, uh, where it makes sense to zoom in on for whatever reason, like let's, let's let yeah. it flow organically. Sure, 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 sure. Uh, so, I mean, I, I jokingly start off, I'll, I'll give you an example of maybe what I'm looking for. So for myself, my first gig. I uh, had a paper route <laughs> and then I went and my next gig was, you know, I was a dishwasher at the university of Guelph and I did that for a summer. And then I decided to go to a cottage instead of showing up to work and they fired me. And that was a terrible decision, I'm sure. And then I dropped out of school and went to, uh, you know, um, and, and the, there's a Canadian program or an Ontario program, uh, that I'm failing to remember at the moment, but ultimately it was subsidized my wages for an employer, and I worked at a you know a farm hardware store kind of thing. So like that kind of level. Got it. Um, That's awesome. Yeah, I can do that. I can do that. Thank you, Martin, for giving me the the sort of the template. Um, you ready? <laughs> you ready for this life? Give it. Give me your life. Uh, yeah, it's not super complex to be honest. I I I, I started uh, work my first professional role. Probably quite quite late. Uh, I imagine around seventeen, eighteen. Uh, again, honestly, living a reasonably privileged life. You know, in 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 Asia, uh, I didn't really have to. I'm not. I didn't really have to contribute economically. Uh, I just had to be independent at certain ages. Mm -hmm. So, seventeen, eighteen. Probably my first thing. My first two types of roles in college before university, because we don't we go to college before university. Um, I was on the entrepreneurial side. I, I had probably picked up a camera for two years by then and was able to convince <laughs> all business owners to hire me as a photographer. So this is the first leanings of a career path while I was in college. Which again, for people in, the, in that kind of college, it would be uncommon to have someone work as well as study. Uh, but that's my first memory, uh, you know, shooting a couple of restaurants. I even had my first book cover at the age of 18, a small book book. Uh, about again things I care about, including even at that age, about schizophrenia in in Malaysia, uh, and I had the writer reach out to me not only because I was a budding photographer, because I was, I would have been affordable, I imagine, but also already then someone being able to discern that I could then connect with uh, a very unique subject in a short amount of time. I'm already taking too long, so let's let's just leave that. Along with that, I also, now that I'm thinking about it, also played the role of my first time being an art dealer, which I'm only just remembering now. Uh, <laughs> I would go to an antique market, find an illustrator uh, who drew popular characters like Transformers and Marvel and DC, pick up something, and this is an incredible margin at the time, like, but small amounts. Uh, but maybe buy something for a dollar to three dollars and sell them as high as 
$50. So incredible ratio of returns, but you know, not making it rain, making it, but not super sustainable in that. Like that takes a lot of labor. Okay. Okay. Then moving on, moving on, moving on, coming to university, um, staff photographer at a magazine and then staff photographer at our local newspaper uh, connected to the school. Um, I did, Oh, this is the one where I, not super great. I did club photography. Um, you know, like taking pictures of drunk people supposedly having a fantastic time uh, <laughs> uh, and looking smash so that they can see themselves on the screen so that, you know, the other people will come and have an equally amazing time. <laughs> so there was that. Um, I interned at a design firm. I was a, then moved on to film, a production house. Uh, in Canada, uh, a production house in a summer in London, in 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 England, um, doing mm-hmm. live concerts primarily. Uh, in in Canada, it was primarily doing advertisement as well as editorial work. Uh, really working out of a a a known sound studio, I guess, an audio studio, you know. Uh, and they do audio talent as well in Peterborough, but then they were venturing out into into video production as well, and so. Uh, they got me on board for that for a couple of months or four months or so. Um, and then fast forward, I think that's all the stuff during university time uh, from my memory, outside of like some stuff in admission. So again, the gregariousness and being able to speak to crowds element made me, uh, and then being international, being a scholar, da, 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 made me a good individual to like, I guess, evangelize for the school. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I'm sure there are other things in between which which aren't that consequential. I'm trying to fast forward a little bit because I, I kind of verbose. Uh my first job out of um university was I only did it for a day. <laughs> so at a point I had no more support for me. Only did it for a day and it still gets on the list. Yeah because it's such an outlier and, and I it shows my privilege honestly as well. Uh it still makes it on the list because it also impacted me greatly uh, in terms of context. I worked my only kind of like harder labor job uh, or blue collar job, really, to be honest, um, then. And I, I was working at a sauce factory and I had to stand, I guess, for the first time in my life, I had to stand for a whole day or whatever. And at lunchtime on that day, I got a call from Bombardier for my first professional role. So I left <laughs> next day. <laughs> but but uh, I was desperate, right? I was like, oh, I'll take anything. So like working yeah. at a factory in like Markham or something, and I, I recall almost sleeping. I was, this is how, like, you know, absolute terribly low level of physical grit I have, to be completely honest. <laughs> to be humble with you is that I slept for almost two days, two straight days. I <laughs> working on the floor. And I remember, like, I remember, like, asking the foreman, like, why can't I sit? I feel this, like, it matches the height of the assembly line. Like, why are you telling me to stand? It's like, I don't know. The bosses want to stand. We just got to stand. Like, <laughs> I just remember, like, not being able to accept obedience for the sake of obedience yeah so for anybody who's joined us for this long they're immediately eliminating any standing desk budget <laughs> or rather more importantly the takeaway is that doing stuff for no good reason i think that's the bigger that's the more important yeah yeah also no standing desk for too long um, True. and then so but then i then was able to become kind of wild first job quite a quite a high paying first role which only lasted about three months because it was a consultancy gig uh, for a company Bombardier partner with called Flying Colors in Peterborough, uh, they do 
probably one of the best, if not the best, you know, sort of private jet, private jet servicing company uh, in Canada. Um, and I was a... Now, now I could argue that it was actually a D&I role, to be honest, like a diversity and inclusion role. At the time, I didn't have the vocabulary for it. So I was like a communications consultant slash translator slash interpreter slash gave cultural context to executives for them who just acquired a hangar in Singapore and were then beginning a training program where they would begin this pipeline of individuals being flown over from Singapore, highly skilled technical laborers to then be trained with the Canadian context and specifically the, the SOPs and standards uh, within, within Flying Colors and Bombardier. And so I helped the executives sort of give them cultural context of Singapore um, and that, while and so, so being someone who spoke multiple languages, right? So I spoke all the languages they spoke, so Malay, Mandarin, right. and English, which was the different individuals that were coming from Singapore. And, Sorry. And how does one? No, I'm sorry, I interrupted. But just piquing my curiosity, and 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 how did that opportunity come about? Uh, was it right. Andrew's browsing Workopolis or Monster or whatever it was at the time, and in click, here's my resume. Here, guys. Nope. Uh, it came in inbound in a very similar scenario. Uh, yeah, I, I had an advocate. So a a. Hmm. Peterborough's biggest integration community was reached out to by, so they are a not-for-profit, reached out to by the for-profit, Bombardier and Flying Colors. And they then referred to a director, and I, there's this one director who, similar to you, uh, I've known him through uh, professional uh, as well as like sporting means. And he's like, oh, there's no better interview. You, should, you only need to interview one guy. And, you know, I didn't really... I've got the guy. Here's the guy. Yeah. So I had no competition for the role. Essentially, again... You could argue that that wasn't a very inclusive uh, process, but then the great irony here, of course, is that that's the only job ever in my life that I was in Canada for that I got hired for the ability to speak what is the mother tongue of the average Malaysian. <laughs> so I guess Canada can take a small win there. Uh, that no other time have I ever been asked to know a reasonably esoteric and uncommon language like Malay for a job opportunity. Um, but yeah, that tied me over for a while, and then I had a uh, maybe a period of unemployment. Um, in the meantime, I was so this is where the fashion stuff comes in a little bit. It was already an interest of mine. I was then creating content for a Finnish uh, fashion label, uh, writing writing uh, at the time doing social media content, content and community management, uh, which you know barely got me enough this was this was this was, this was like a tough days post-graduation and not being able to you know having the tension of like needing to find a role immediately and having a limited time to find a role and then perfectionism setting in like needing to find the perfect role as opposed to like just getting an internship which would have probably been a better idea because i could have just graduated to a junior job which would have qualified me for my residency but thinking that i would never leave the intern job i didn't even consider what entry-level jobs would look like in that way um anyway um, and then fast forward, maybe, so what, okay, one other thing, the other time, also my art practice was growing. So I was able to travel, I guess this is like trivia, people only care about professional stuff. You never know what is relevant, right? So this is my challenge of what to exclude. Um, but yeah, I, I remember selling a triptych 
in an exhibition in Boston that paid for my final two to three months of living before I got my first real sustained professional job. When I say real, I mean it qualified me for residency, uh, Canadian residency. Uh, and that was really cool. So that was the first, the people, the design firm that I interned with at 18, also of the many cool things that they do, they also have a traveling art show uh, about spirituality. And so I was invited to be a contributing artist. And I had at that time already contributed two or three times, but this is the first time that I sold in traditionally a non-commercial show because mm-hmm. my, <laughs> my fr- truthfully is because my frame was too expensive to, to, to then go from Boston to Bangkok. And so the cheapest thing to do was to sell it. <laughs> but it was also such an incredible achievement for me, like to be in an actual proper, proper commercial gallery and sell something mm. at the rate that I decided it should be sold for. So it wasn't a tremendous amount of money, probably like four thousand Canadian dollars or something. But like that massive achievement as an artist. What? I can't believe I've just done this. Like, how have I done this? And I was only yeah. there for the opening. I was only there for the opening and it was the only thing for sale. So somebody came and bought it on the first day. Right, like it was such yeah, you, you used to buy things for a dollar and flip them for 50 bucks and, and here you are, you created something that's four grand. That's massive. Thank you. I mean, I haven't done much <laughs> on that front since, since I entered the professional world, which is another conversation, but thank you for your, for your encouragement. Um, yeah, to be honest, that, that consequentially was a big deal for me. I think one, to feed me because I was really desperate, honestly, but also I think it just gave me that lift, that motivational, mm. existential, emotional lift for then what indication describe yeah as my next segment right so at the time again how i'm making money i'm making money through like freelance content with this finnish company little bit by little bit little bit by little bit and then suddenly wow a little bit of buffer by getting this sale right and then leatherfoot open which is no longer around uh is a community part of a community of people that you talk about fashion a little bit earlier uh, this is the only part of fashion that I'm very well versed in, uh, know a lot of people in the industry by, and interestingly, all before I even entered the industry. And so this industry is called classic menswear. It's only about 12 years old. It's basically a resurgence of a belief in true value, uh, in being unconcerned for brand. I know irony, as someone who runs a brand strategy consulting company, uh, and really open to craft, right? To craft standards, uh, to, 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 to workmanship, to artisans, right? And so to small batch, it's almost like, a, you know, it's like the small batch sort of movement. It, it, you could, it, this could be kombucha or this could be, this could be craft beer, but in this case, it's tailoring, right? Mm-hmm. Making or milnering or whatever, that, whatever the craft. And so knowing who the individual behind the, the tools is and. I mean, it, it has grown since, so obviously there are many brands, but yeah, you basically, you know, your supply chain is more or less understood. You know how much the fabric costs, you know, it's very transparent in that way. You know, if you, if you care to look at the lid, which uh, you don't need much to, to find out. And so, yeah, it's quite cool to know your true cost, right? Like, you know where your money's going, you know the individual you're feeding, right? It's quite a powerful uh, sort of like capitalistic and commercial experience. And so this is where uh, my kind of Canadian professional journey. Oh my gosh, actually, I've already missed out a bunch of stuff. Let's, whoops, sorry. Uh, there's one key industry I've completely neglected, which is, which is the world of Hollywood. Oh man, sorry. So before I started my first professional job. Uh, casual forgetting about Hollywood. Casual forgetting about Hollywood. I'm so sorry. Because I didn't end up being able to work in Hollywood, right? So because I, I, have Canadian rest, I, I had a Canadian work permit. I couldn't go back to with my employers to LA. And so I worked at TIFF 
for three summers as an industry member. Uh, once for a distribution company, so these are people who buy and sell the rights for films. Uh, which remember that's what TIFF ultimately is for. It is a trade show, uh, as much as it is a community festival. You know, TIFF just does a very good job of making it um, inclusive. Um, I did red carpet press for a season. Uh, meaning, yeah, this is this is the one that I guess when I was younger, people were really envious about. Which really doesn't mean much if you're in industry and you're meeting like superstars. You can't really gush. You know, you, you can't really show. You can't really show you're that close. So, I mean, I've met like people like Scarlett Johansson or like, you know, Hugh Jackman, Terrence Davis. I mean, I don't know, whatever. These sort of contemporaries, Reese Spoon, these sort of contemporary stars uh, on the red carpet and occasionally in, in like social settings. But really, um, yeah, you know, I, I, I sort of played the role of either asking questions or developing questions to ask or, or doing some form of interviewing uh, behind camera or behind the mic. So uh, that was a season that was quite fun, not necessarily rewarding, but quite fun. Um, and already, yeah, 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 let's just leave it at that. And then, and then, and then the last one for, interestingly, because of name dropping, interning for what was the head of what we now know as Amazon Prime at the time. So this was just before they launched their video streaming platform. And I, you know, met the guy that ran the show and was his intern, uh, which was really cool. He was here on a book tour, uh, as well as promoting, uh, some education along what it means to be a good producer, an ethical producer, and um, and his name is Pat Hope, by the way, and uh, also promoting something called oh man, it slips my mind right now, but essentially uh, a not anti piracy coalition at the time, and so you can see the the links there, right? Anti piracy leading to SVOD, oh, sorry, a sub subscription based video on demand platform. This is this is the advent of Netflix and. Now we have Peacock, but there are so many options today. But at that time, it's a simple insight that we were going on is that if people had access to the shows, they wouldn't steal it. The problem is they don't have access to the shows, the content they want. Right. And so anyway, I was helping him with that campaign. So yeah, sorry, I, I, that is a kind of a cool thing to, to leave out. I'm sorry, I, I, I do feel proud of having worked uh, in that space. And, you know, yeah, it's, it's, it's quite a quite an eye-opening uh, and can be kind of glitzy, you know, the parties and stuff, uh, part of the experience. Yeah. And the thing that stands out to me is in hearing all of this, A, it takes time to properly explain, right? And if you were to, in, in, in going back to sort of the initial thing is like to explain your experience, there's this, and, and I'm talking about how things are broken, not, not, you know, what an exciting a life to have lived so far. I know we haven't even gotten through everything and gotten up to, to where we even met, but if we're talking about the challenge of, or the problem of traditional recruitment is there's this fascination or preference towards finding candidates that are just, you know, all they have is only the experience you're looking for, right? Versus the diversity of experience that, that you have, right? And it's it's just much easier for me to pick up a resume that says software developer for the last 10 years and feel confident that this person's going to do well versus software developer who just graduated from a code school or general assembly oh. in the last three months and has been 
X and Y and Z and the entire alphabet before that and and just dismiss all of those experiences immediately, right? Mm. And it's just, there's, again, commenting really just on the brokenness of it. But when you have the opportunity and you pause and you take sort of, and maybe this is what our users slash listeners today can can uh, take from this is if you if you pause and you and you give more time to the people that you're speaking with, you might be able to uncover experiences that might completely alter your opinion of, of their skill set and their ability. And if maybe they're not the greatest storytellers, and that's not your case, Andrew, but if they're not the greatest storytellers, maybe you can help them tell them stories for themselves. Right, 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 right. There's a consulting element there, yeah, right, or coaching element there for sure. I think right. and, uh, really great recruiters do, do 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 that though. Let me just let me just put it out there. Right, and and uh, I I don't want people listening to think that that's what I do all the time because I'm just <laughs> as guilty as all of them. Right, it would be nice. I would love. I think if if anything, this is a great branding exercise for me. But that's not the case. Majority of the time, that doesn't happen. Just in, just out of out of necessity. So, but anyways, going going back to he's an honest know, man. He's an honest man. Coming back, to the, <laughs> coming back to the timeline. <laughs> so here, yeah. in, here we begin what I would consider, rather, let me rephrase that. Here we begin what the Canadian state considers Canadian experience. Because <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> everything has so many things are described. That's, that, that word is underlined and bolded for so many individuals, right? That is getting your Canadian experience is such a massive thing. But think of yeah. how much work I've done already in Canada before. Exactly. 100%. Yeah. Right. Wild. To me, genuinely wild. Um, and so my first role really, really eluded me, right? It took me a long, long ass time to get. I applied for whatever, easily over 100 jobs. I mean, what, much more than that. You know, to be honest, the amount of networking I did, da, 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 da. All the referrals and all the things you need to do. Uh, hopefully, most of them I tried and I, I failed. And at this time, it, so, okay, coming back to the classic menswear space, it, is, it can be quite snobby because it's not very accessible. Um, I don't know why. It's odd because it's hard to name drop anything because unless you have this specific interest, you probably don't recognize any of these brands or individuals and you also don't recognize why they're valuable or even more oftentimes superior to probably everything that the average individual... I don't, I don't even mean this trivially. I mean this totally, seriously, explicitly right mm. uh, uh objectively uh, of higher quality durability uh you know of of, of you know of ethics of the of, of of payment of the labor whatever uh maybe not as sustainable on some occasions something like patagonia or something could win on the front perhaps potentially but anyway i think the average individual may not be able to discern the difference and so it's hard to even talk about that it's, again it comes to a field it's like how can you believe me if you don't know anything about the field right mm-hmm. so yeah. Anyway, I went to what was a very ambitious project um, in Yonkville. Uh, a company had just uh, acquired a Victorian mansion, uh, four-story four Victorian mansion, and converted it into a store and company. So there was an e-commerce space, there was a showroom, uh, a hat maker was there, a, we bought over a shoemaker, bought over a hat maker, bought over a talent tailor, and then had still had ready to wear uh, shoes and clothes as well. A uh, bunch of showrooms. Really, really incredible project uh, along this space. Very progressive for Canada, which knows nothing about classic menswear or, or really of like high quality tailoring, to be honest. 
And so a lot of risk shots fired. Yeah, absolutely. Shots fired from from someone who's been in the industry, right? So hopefully with some sure. no. composition of, uh, of, uh, no. of knowledge. And I mean, it's not in your history, so it's not really. Can't really blame you guys, you know. Oh, it's, not, <laughs> it's not in the history that you've continued to adopt. You guys had a thriving garment district uh, just downtown. It's just you just entirely left it behind. Like there's almost nothing there now. You know, that's, yeah, that's where the tech community works now. <laughs> true, true. I was going to say, that's just the evolution of, of the priorities of Canadians, right? So uh, not really just making an observation, I hope. Um, no, no, no. Yeah, so this first role, uh, I, I want to tell the story of how I got it. You know, this is really my first introduction, really, really to how power works. You know, like the person that owned the place was exceptionally wealthy, someone who owns like Mining, a mining company, resource extraction company, hotels, telecoms uh, in multiple countries around the world. Um, and yeah, part and parcel of this is a very, can be very, he ran it in a very elitist way. So really the whole stick was like your proximity to him and the tailor and the brand. Like the closer that you are to him means that you know, you've earned the right, sort of this like earned the right to be in that space. The whole point is about exclusion. I know this sounds really, really awful, uh, but obviously they are like just innocent bucks like myself who just come in because they're interested in the clothes and the shoes, right? But really, this is the game, okay? And so I go to I go to the first event where the most famous writer in the space has just flown in from London, who's launching a doing a book signing. I buy a book. I, I you know I have a good time with people. I make some friends. Uh, one of which, at the time, I did not know. Uh, but one of which is this young guy who complimented me in my clothes, who's wearing, you know, the best tailor that's alive today. One of the top five tailors in the world. He's like, he's wearing a $15,000 suit. Okay. Um, Martin, you with me? Yeah. Okay. And uh, I did not realize this at the time, but I had just met Leatherfoot's biggest client. And this guy has like uh, easily a seven figure um, wardrobe budget every year. Um, and okay, so that's that, right? And so I had been speaking to them and yeah, no opportunity. I didn't even think of working then. Then there's the second book launch, the second most famous, like maybe a month later or two months later, the second most famous writer comes from Paris. <laughs> so he launches his book as well. And this time around, I get along, not just, and some of the same faces show up, right? You know, it's a small community. But I really get along with the writer and his wife. And they're much older than me. They're in the mid-50s. But, mm-hmm. but we get along along the lines of, not of, again, of this game of power and politics, but along the lines of, for the first time, talking about shout-out arts, arts degree holders, we got along, like, in a, in a I don't know, what we would say in a hard level, in an impactful and meaningful way, along a, a French philosophy, you know, and... And that being the foundation of our outlook on life, but then by default also our interest in clothing, in tailoring. And he is a, in the space, like when I say the second most popular book, I mean highly, highly influential, right? And he had wrote, he had wrote a piece on, his, on his, one of his blogs about, about the state of young individuals coming to work in this resurgent industry, which has a lot of stigma. Like being a shoe salesman has a lot of stigma. It's like, oh, that's a dinky, that's a dinky job, right? But then... This, this rebranding, this re, retaking, reowning of what a craft looks like, our relationship to clothes and fabric. He was trying to help rebrand the space, essentially. So I reached out to him and said, was there anyone he could introduce me to? Um, and simultaneously, I was having a conversation. I saw that really 
you know, this guy who rolled in on a Rolls Royce, I didn't, I, I just know he was rich. I didn't know that he was Leatherfoot's biggest client. But I also was asking about whether he had, he knew anyone that could hire me or if he could hire me in any of his, he, like the owner of this company, also owns a, a bunch of stuff, okay? It's like, you own so much stuff, like maybe you have a role for me. You know, I just sort of asked quite, quite openly. And What you got, man? Sorry? What you got for me? Yeah, what you got for me, exactly, exactly. And I know I'm taking a bit of time here, but yeah. I'm just going to try to finish this story because I think it is consequential of like shaping my Canadian experience. Martin, I hope you don't mind. Um, I would have I would have cut you out if I did, so don't worry. Um, and so they then both come up with the idea of, of asking independently, asking, why don't you work for, uh, for Leatherfoot? And I said I had no desire to work in the clothing world, um, but they said I would be happy to speak to the owner for you, right? They both said that simultaneously. And the owner, again, is, and I already had been speaking to them. They are notorious for, like, not answering your calls, for just, like, again, you're not powerful enough. You have nothing to offer me. I won't even entertain you, right? Yeah, so I, I probably haven't even had a word with the owner. Maybe he's just greeted me. Because in front of house, he'll be very polite. He'll be like, yes, please, come, right? And so the first person uh, referred me, and I didn't hear anything. But then hours later, the second person referred me, or maybe the next day, the second person referred me, and then within like 45 minutes of the second referral, I got a phone call from his lawyer. Uh, basically, who's also his henchman, I guess, who's like, I'm ready to set up a meeting with you. This so-and-so set up a meeting with you. Can you be here at X amount of time tomorrow? Yeah. And that's one of those calls where it's, you just, you don't, you don't, just like, oh, I can't make it. That's not a situation. <laughs> yeah, super nervous. I mean, that's the whole illusion of power, right? Like you, you yeah, yeah, yeah. That's why I've learned one of my greatest quick pitch about myself. You know, one of my greatest skill sets which people never ask about, which I, I will argue, maybe I'll give you the final anecdote at the very end, about people asking the wrong questions. But speaking truth to power is truly something I take a great amount of pride in, right? Um, you understand the phrase, uh, Martin, right? I mean to an extent, but I mean, why not explain it? Yeah, yeah, really, really essentially saying that I, I, I can be honest, be explicit, can be constructive, can be straightforward with someone that is significantly more powerful than I am, who has a disproportionate <laughs> level of power to me. That's a huge skill. I, I wish I had an ounce of that skill. It never comes up. No one seems to care about this, uh, which is, which, which I, I would argue what makes me a very, very good consultant. Because I tell her, exceptionally powerful CEO, way richer than me, way more established, way more connections, highly educated, whatever. And because I don't value his power and wealth, their power and wealth, in the same way they value power and wealth, it's not a risky endeavor for me to speak my mind. Yeah, there's the, the okay. And I learned no. during this experience as well. So anyway, okay, this is the first example of me pitching for my job. I come in with an eight-page document the next day saying, this is what I'm going to do for you. The day after that, I sign and I have my first professional job. And I cannot believe after almost a year of like precarious labor, this is how I end up getting my role. Not in the field I want to. Not a junior mm -hmm. job necessarily. I started as a brand manager. Uh, and with one that uh, didn't exist, I had to just make it up. I just made it up in eight pages. Right? 
Yeah, and the laundry list of positions that you were probably applying for in between that. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, and so there was a great irony, and like it was a bit unbelievable. It was great relief. Um, so, so in short, what did I do? You know, I, I guess I should talk about what I'm doing there. I I did. Uh, I guess most of their comms work, their branding work, uh, worked with all. We had we had a lot of outsourced consultants. Uh, I helped with their buying, so choosing. Uh, what gets made, what, um, I'm sure you understand that, right? Uh, what gets made, what's mm-hmm. brought in, uh, uh, into the country to be sold. Um, I worked on the consulting and a little bit with uh, the designs for the actual tailoring. But in the, 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 most of my work was, I guess, lumped in the, the realm of like stakeholder management and, 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 and marketing, right? Um, so yeah, that was my first job. We finally got to our first professional job. Um, (laughs) uh, and then I would say things didn't end well where there was some challenges with cash flow but again it's it's interesting right it's just one of those things about uh, you know working with a private business that has such high volumes of money coming in and out right like the cheapest pair of shoes in there you know range I mean like maybe it's like $650 and then the most expensive pair is like, you know, $20,000, right? So like, it can be very polarizing, sort of like, can you imagine, right? Like one person comes in the shop and he spends, or they spend six, six or seven figures, you know, that could make or break like a quarter or something, you know? Um, mm-hmm. Anyway, 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 anyway. So moving on, uh, I leave that role with some, again, speaking truth to power is a big element of that, like disagreement with, uh, how certain vendors were treated, yada, yada, yada. I, I think I can speak about this openly. I, I don't feel any shame. Uh, in fact, I feel quite proud about my, my values today. At the time, I was quite fearful um, because it was also the first time I, I witnessed what real, real power looked like. Not just to do with hiring, but I mean like, you know, like even like, oof, I don't know, maybe I can't go into much too much detail here, but like, you know, as, as retribution, like someone being able to convince the government to stop a resource extraction project in another continent because there's a dispute about a small amount of money something like that yeah. it's like to me that's absolutely wild i'm like if you can do that what could you do to me if i've wronged you you know i, I left with yeah. the feeling of fear it's like what this is the type of people that i'm rubbing shoulders with. i have no idea i have probably no idea what you're capable of and what you have access to he was frightening right uh towards the end and so uh, that company is no longer around, um, and um, and then I moved on to my first role in technology. Uh, and so far, you've heard everything I've talked about. I've not mentioned technology at all. And so, similar to that, I also pitched my second job, um, and I can name the company now, who's doing, to me, absolutely no surprise, doing ac- absolutely excellently, not faced by COVID nineteen at all. Uh, they are called. Uh, the, yeah, the registered name is called Sympathical Intelligent Systems, but they are now they are best known for their, 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 their product. Uh, their, their flagship product is called Smile CDR. Um, they are a started off as a AI powered and it's very technical. Fire, which is a FHIR, is a standard of health healthcare data and and security uh, level. Um, clinical data repository. And so the people who co-wrote this standard are the same people who 
ran this company, who started up this startup at the time. And it was a very interesting mix of individuals, and I was privileged to be employee number one. Um, we have the lead architect of UHN. I mean, oh my gosh, you have some of the most bloody talented people in health tech in Canada working on it. Uh, you have another individual who, I can't, I can't reference this role at the time, but essentially just believe he's a CIO, so very, very skilled. Then you have one um, money guy. Oh, sorry, rather, you have one uh, uh, CEO type, and then you have two VCs who run firms who are just putting in their own money. So you have super well-backed, and you have the people who literally wrote the new technology releasing its first commercial product. Like, also an incredible introduction to the tech scene for me. Um, I joined them just before the stage of commercialization. So pre-commercial to commercial, that's when they started hiring people, right? And they just hired me as like an all-around, again, this is when being a generalist helps, right? And I hate the word generalist because it seems I'm not specialized in anything as opposed to specialize in multiple things. But, mm -hmm. yeah, uh, you know, being a quote-unquote generalist here really helps. So, you know, I could do fun and development, uh, which you may or may not know about. I'm pretty terrible at it. Um, could do some technical writing, uh, and then you could do content, you could do partnerships, uh, you could do data work, which is like, again, sifting through a bajillion context that we've adopted from all these really, really powerful individuals. You know, and so it's a very different startup from like a young guy trying to like have this as a career as opposed to uh, getting a job. These guys, you know, the money guys all have this as like, this is one of my, it's like Constellation Software, you remember that company. Like they go in and they, I mean, essentially it's just like a VC or private equity model. Really, it's just to, to make a bunch of money and sell after a bunch of years. Similar to all the tech dudes, um, who are this, you know, people who literally wrote the standard uh, it's kind of like a retirement plan. They sell this and they, they can retire, right? That's how mm -hmm. they expect this company to be. And, and fair enough, it's like imagine, imagine having 5G, uh, being the people who wrote 5G and then coming out with the first 5G product. Everybody else behind us in the same space is going to be X number of time since Smile Subsidiar came out. Imagine like having been that kind of pioneer in whatever space you're in. It's absolutely incredible, right? And I would say also was a challenging experience um, but I learned such an incredible amount with having exposure to the individuals I did on a daily basis, right? Like my average colleague is a C-suite slash VC, yeah. which to me at the age of whatever, how old I was in my, at the time, uh, in my twenties, uh, mid twenties rather, sorry, um, it was wild. Uh, it was one of the single most so demanding and so challenging, and what? But one of the single most empowering, ultimately in retrospect, experiences I've I've had in my career in terms of learning, right? Mm -hmm. And that led me to be able to jump a few rungs in my next role, which is where I met you uh, at General Assembly, um, where in short the title was uh, head of partnerships. Um, but my role, I had. Again, I enjoyed it because I had multiple, I obviously had a lot of freedom and discretion. I only reported to the CEO, but really I also enjoyed it for the breadth. So I had multiple portfolios, Martin, as I'm, I'm sure you know, um, where I met you was like on the hiring front, which is like convincing you know, other executive stakeholders um, about why the value proposition of a bootcamp is valuable, right? So that was one portfolio. Uh, 
second portfolio is like marketing community partnerships uh, which yeah can be anything you know we was able to partner with like some highlights involved like partnering with Google or, or, or Square Weebly like some of these like massive companies to like doing more community-based stuff which like you know I was just interested in design and like you know I ran a, a with you even like you kind of hosted for me like you know a design-based hackathon a couple of times like that was really all like a design meetup that I also co-hosted every six weeks or two months or so like those were really like enjoyable and rewarding parts of the job like the community aspects of being able to help mm-hmm. profits or community-based work uh, with the city, for example. But then the part that brought in the most revenue really is like bringing in, and again, this is the part, the only part that people would care about, really. <coughs> Excuse me. The only part that a, a recruiter would ask me about. They wouldn't even give a rat's ass really about the other two. Um, but what brought in money, right? Which is me uh, playing a consultative sales role for, B- for General Assembly's enterprise initiatives, which most people know General Assembly as a B2C company, but really that's actually a, a minor fraction of their revenue and what made them eventually profitable before the acquisition with Adeco. And so part and parcel of me was bringing, my role was bringing in this type, parts of the business into Canada. This meant accreditation, it meant consulting uh, on the digital transformation front, and and as a portion of that consulting, really playing a role of pre-sales for large-scale upskilling and reskilling. And by large-scale, I mean like, you know, four-year-long engagements, like thousands of people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so this was by far also the most exciting part of my job because, and the part I think people don't recognize when they just see the title head of partnerships, right? <laughs> Within this one job alone, it's like you have no recognition of how diverse this of roles were, which is why I took it, right? But like being able to give you an example of being like like Walmart, like being able to speak to all their SVPs and their C-suites, you know, about something like UX design, which they had very little knowledge of at the time, you know, and I'm being able to, so, so I go in usually as a consultant, right? But I go in, I partner with someone else and I partner with someone else who's like a rock star in their field. So I'm kind of like the suit. So I talk about business goals, which I'm very proud to talk about. And like, again, something I would flex, but no one even recognizes that when you look at the word head of partnerships, right? You probably don't even recognize, you probably even realize this is part of my job. I, Martin, I wouldn't be surprised if you didn't even realize that, right? And so- No, I didn't. Yeah, you go into, you go into, you go into something like a boardroom like that, and you basically kind of do a show and tell for either, you know, maybe a day, two days to get them warmed up to the idea. The ultimate goal is to pass them on to, to a, you know, some kind of, ex, you know, executive account director or something in, in New York who then sells them something else. But what I'm concerned for is this that change management element and education there and then of very, very powerful people. So like my favorite, let me just give him a shout out as well. Um, my favorite consultant that we just had, a, again, so much more senior than me, but respected me greatly, such mutual respect for each other was the head of media for the NFL. Like imagine like what a massive role, like someone flies in from LA every time we have an engagement. And he's the rock star, like, you know, he wows them with his anecdotes of all the startups he's bought and sold and da 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 da, da. And then I keep them on track with their business goals. So, like, that was the, 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 the complimentary relationship we've had. And, wow, I mean, I've, I keep talking about this job, like, it's such a great job, my goodness. I mean, there's a lot of challenges with it as well, but that <laughs> got me going. Yeah. It was such, in some ways, it was quite high stakes. But it really showed what another real really like a super powerful skill I have that I would like slab on if people want to say you want to hire me for one thing like this is one of them 
high level, really, really high level executive stakeholder management, right? And then that translating potentially, you can do that as a pre-sale or sale activity, but also you can do that as a consulting sort of uh, 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 engagement, right? And so being able to- Truth to power. Yep. is part and part high of, level. of course. Yeah, absolutely. No, I mean, that that's a skill you would absolutely need. And yeah, yeah, yeah of and course. high levels, executive stakeholder management. And if we're talking about superpowers, yeah, right? Exactly. And and I think just in, in hearing this and having this conversation, my challenge with you has always been, you know, how do I describe all the variety of things that you do when I think in theory, you know, just you, we talk about, you know, the functional resume versus the chronological resume, right? Where it's like, I worked at these companies for this period of time. And this is what I did. And, and I've just been looking at, and that's how I look at every individual in their in their resume. To a certain extent, that the functional resume isn't very popular, but mm. when you do have a lot of experience, the functional resume is these are my skills, and you lead with your skills. And the companies you've worked for are a footnote, not really, but you know, in comparison, the 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 weight is on the the functional skills. So. Um, anyway, remember we respond to that as well. Actually, I wanted to come full circle to this eventually at some point. Because you mentioned earlier, you really sort of hyped me up about my intelligence, you know. So let's just talk, let's go back to the boardroom again. Obviously, my intelligence and cultural capital carries a tremendous amount of weight when I'm talking to a C-suite that's 30 years my senior. Yeah. Right? Of course. It's like if I can have any conversation because I've experienced so much of the world and of life, it's requisite to be able to speak at someone who's 30 years your senior. How can you catch up to them if you don't have those years? If you're not 60 years old yourself, 60 years old yourself, right? Mm -hmm. But how do I say that out loud? And I talked to someone else, someone, one of the interviews I'm having is at, at, at Deloitte. And you know, one of the senior directors, you know, he, I, I could tell very quickly that we had value alignment, so I could be honest, which is a very, very rare opportunity in, in my HR processes, to be honest. It's always deceit or selective. Not deceit is the wrong word, but like selective information, not being myself, repression, right? And he's right. like, I can imagine how you could never say that your greatest, because he discerned for me my greatest skill set. My, my mentor, my primary mentor would say this as well, who is a, a high-level executive coach, is that it's my wit, it's speed, it's abstract intelligence, it's speed of thought, right? You're putting me on the spot, it's like I can come up with something like, like, you know, with, with immediacy. Yeah. But you can't no, it's a that. How can I sell it even on a, not only on the element of it being an odd thing to sell on a resume, but also you see <laughs> like an absolute, like a joke of like, a, like an asshole. You see yeah, like no. level of arrogance are you to be able to say, yes, I'm good because I'm so bloody fast. Like who, <laughs> who's going to take you seriously? So few people take you seriously. But and yet it's so true though. A real, right? real superpower, Martin. That's like a real superpower. I know this confirmed by it so many times by people I respect. I know this. I proudly would say it to someone who believes me. Okay, but you've got to mm -hmm. believe me, though. If you don't believe me, then there's no point. Yeah, no, that's fair. Sorry to interrupt you. Please go ahead. No, 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 no. I mean, I think that that makes the... That, but I only had that point to add as well. So if we're going about um, where... Where you're at. So you're at General Assembly returning the story. <laughs> okay, sorry. I'm almost done. I'm almost done. I'm so sorry. Oh my gosh. It's almost a two-hour podcast. There's going to be so much editing for you. I'm so sorry. Okay. Okay, okay, okay. My I'm not going to edit a single thing, to be honest with you. 
oh my gosh, a two-hour podcast. Merry Christmas. All the best, anybody who. <laughs> this is a fascinating story. And I mean, no, it, most people will drop off, right? If, if we're just thinking of conversion rates. At some point, somebody's going to be like, I got I to gotta wash my dishes or walk my dog or something. Or actually, no, those things are perfect podcast things. But this, this is meant to... You're, you're meant to go for the long haul. And I think we've learned so much and talked about some oh, fascinating boy. things already. But I mean, if, you know, you turn the tables on me a few times, but like there is that, and, and there is this weird, like, it's good that you don't repress it. But like, if we're talking about like the challenge of trying to like extract the entire life experience is so it's, it's, it's difficult, right? Because there is so much richness to all of it. And I think what's probably difficult is you, there is value in that richness and you don't want to skip over it. Why glaze over it, right? Why jump from profession to profession? This is my title here. This is my, this is, you know, this is the country I was in. This is the title I did. And this was the, the job. And in one sentence, this is what I did for the job because there's so much more to it, right? As you described and proved with director of partnerships, everybody, might assume this, but nobody would imagine that a director of partnerships was sitting in the boardroom with Wal Walmart executives and 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 uh, the chap that you partnered with, right? Yeah, and that's just one story, man. I mean, just one of exactly right, isn't that like so? Even you tell me the challenge, I really have appreciated. Like, I thank you, thank thank you for like giving me like a little bit of validation there because. Like, if I have challenges just describing one role, I think, like, because someone might say, yeah, just give me your most recent roles, but even then, you need to give me a little bit of time, you know, like, yeah. and that's not even telling you my most recent one, because the most recent one is the most diverse by far, because I'm the most powerful in that, relative to all the others. So maybe I can end with that, if you don't mind. No, yeah. I mean, I'm end my, 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 my history anyway, you know, uh, Martin, if you don't mind. Um, yeah, absolutely. So, between that, I, I, uh, you know, I'm just going to mention it as well. I no, it's just about. I'm, I'm not going to. Okay, so I spent a little bit of time shooting my first solo photography exhibition uh, between my general assembly job and job I am transitioning out of right now. And right now, again, the titles are totally arbitrary. I guess I'm a director of strategy and insights, but I'm really a, a, a limited partner. That's probably the best understanding uh, or a junior partner, however you want to, however what legally to use, uh, at a reasonably old, so almost 30-year-old brand strategy consulting company in my original home of Kuala Lumpur. And Martin, I really am slightly worried about how long this thing is. Maybe we can annotate it or something if you need help with that. But I mean, the richness really begins of what richness can look like is what this role look like, looks like for me. And I think you have some understanding, but I also think you will learn some stuff about what I do here. Are you ready? Always. Okay. So my current role, uh, what does it mean to be a limited partner? Limited partner just means that I am, for me specifically, I'm pre-buy-in to the options that I have. Uh, this company has been around for a while, so they offer a lot of assets. Again, Asians kind of stereotypically like buying properties, so we own a bunch of property. Um, uh, anyway, uh, but really, in effect, it means I'm also responsible for PNL uh, duties. Uh, it means contributing, I mean, yeah, contributing to making sure the company stays alive and how much profit we make, uh, what kind of engagements we take on, but also equally as importantly as a consultant, uh, doing a senior role, I also do the sales element, which very specifically I'm concerned for, is also recommending the service mix. 
right? Meaning consultants, consultancies are selling intangibles, which means I get, to, I get to decide really what those intangibles are, how they should be segmented, uh, who comes on board, and how much they should cost. Which I think is, again, even when I think of conventional HR people, like that's a super important part of my role here, which may not even come across as a director of strategy. You know, it's like, yeah. that's frustrating. You know, it's, you got to have nuance, right? Like, you don't recognize that this is, this is really, a, you know, this is an entrepreneurial role in that way, right? Like, it's, it's being responsible for feeding, you know, whatever, double digits of people, right? So, okay, the core work that I do is branding, right? So, the easiest example of that is, like, if you think of a Landor or an Interbrand, I just do that in Asia. So this, you know, includes, you know, your, your regular branding suite of things, uh, including like brand architecture or naming or, or purpose uh, statements, for example, uh, to brand attributes. And, you know, the, the, the sort of like, I guess I, this, this part of it is, is reasonably straightforward, right? Like any branding company uh, would, would do that. Um, but what makes this company special and one of the primary reasons I came back, outside of being tapped to be partner and you know, part of their legacy plan, essentially, uh, my partners are all in their early 50s, um, is that it's a super unique business model, right? And so I was testing for myself whether I was looking for more progressive economic business models. And this is one of them. Like for the exact service that we do for, that makes us our revenue every year, about 30 to 50% of it is pro bono or at cost for causes that we believe in. So part and parcel of that could look like social causes, environmental causes, but also political causes. So two years ago, Malaysia had the most historic election in its history where we transitioned governments for the first time ever peacefully. And we messaged for that coalition government. So imagine backing a horse that has never won in their life and then it changed history for a country, right? So be able to, to be able to take pride in like knowing that every you know, more than half of the Malaysians in Malaysia have voted for a symbol that you created, for a logo that you, that you designed. That's absolutely wild, right? So that's like that, that level of impact uh, and access is one of the main reasons, you know, I, I came back uh, to work here. Um, and so, yeah, so I've talked a little bit about brand strategy consulting, you know, but my biggest deal in Malaysia, and you're talking about the belief uh, and the sort of wild polarizing amount of experiences I have within somewhere like Canada versus Malaysia, you know, I got to pitch the Prime Minister's office, the ministry, like the Minister of Finance, the Minister of Communications, like, <laughs> these are some of the most powerful people in my country, like, to get into those boardrooms and make a case mm -hmm. for myself as, like, a someone in my age, which ageism is a massive thing here, someone who is kind of foreign to the country, who's just been back for just over a year, like this is an incredible amount of access and that project was along the lines of of film. It, uh, my role was an executive producer in, in that and, and part and parcel was getting financing from the state mm -hmm. uh, for a project along the lines of anti-corruption. And then it began at a $10,000, or not even $10,000, like a $5,000 project in fact, it's where it began. So imagine like going from a $5,000 project convincing a, a, a very high powerful level bureaucrat to to entertain the idea first off of spending over a million dollars on the arts in film 
on anti-corruption with someone who understands my quote-unquote complexity, because he himself has a PhD and has high proficiency in English, but then also to not have to be corrupt. I don't think listeners, unless you had exposure of the global south, recognize how rare the Venn diagram I'm just describing to you is. Right. Right. I didn't. It's just a sliver. You're in the. Yeah. You're in a single singular pixel. If it's a digital image of two circles, there's one or two pixels where that that those two things coexist. It feels like a once in a lifetime opportunity. Is what I'm saying. Hmm. Right. And yeah. part and parcel of me leaving that that really was the straw on the camel's back sort of thing that that broke. I seen like it broke my spirits greatly to have a coup happen. Uh, a couple of months ago, and then the pandemic hit, and the approval, for example, I've already gotten all the approval that I need, just the official signature that is part of a larger bill, because it's still official, obviously, right? You, you, the part of a bill that will sign off this extra use of funds from the state was less than 12 hours away from ha- that meeting happening. That was announcement of a lockdown, right? Yeah. And so when you talk about my roles, again, seeing the role director of strategy, would you have known that I successfully convinced some of the most powerful people in the nation state with all the specificity I just gave to sell a film project at a mid, like, you know, at, at seven, like you would never know that. No. Right. And so and one, I still consider that a win, even though I'm crushed that it will not materialize because it's now a change of government. It's like imagine having a C-suite and then to the next day, every single person that you have worked with is fired. Yeah, that's effectively what it is. It's effectively what it is, except it's illegitimate, which makes it worse. Because there's no reason I should have forecasted for that as a business owner. No. Super unfair, right? And so, um, but I still see that as a win, like the experience I've had. The unfortunate thing, if you don't listen to stories, all I have for it is a cool story and some cool pictures. I don't have the output to show, but I did do the work though. Mm. I I succeeded And, and how do you translate that, right? No bloody clue, right? Because for, for now, it means absolute squat to an average recruiter. Yeah. And 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 the big thing, the, the dichotomy between everything that you've just talked about, the diversity of your experiences, the depth of, of knowledge that you've acquired, your ability to understand all these complex things, and then run into the challenges that you've, you know, been kind enough to share with me personally. But you know, the the challenges that for the folks that are still listening, that they can assume, right? I probably would have looked at his resume and made an assumption, right? We made thousands, hundreds of assumptions, and just all of those stories just fade off into the ether, and you don't. And that's what has sort of made. Uh, helping you a challenge, right? Because if I'm if I'm helping you, I'm running into the same issue, right? If I'm just like, oh, Andrew needs help finding finding work in Canada, well, I'll just shoot his resume over to a few people. It's 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 not that simple, right? Because there's all these stories behind all of these things that I mean, just even if you know list the things still, Martin. Like, if you, don't, you allow me, just give me thirty more seconds just to finish this, right? Like, even if I just listed the things. It would either seem that I did everything poorly or something, or I didn't know what I was looking for, or this guy is suddenly like an unbelievable human being. Because that was just the kind of still the tip of the iceberg. Executive production, brand strategy. I'm a consulting editor at my country's only Fortune 500 
editorial, like the magazine, right? Like that's a total mm-hmm. different skill set. Being an editor of a magazine is not what executive producer does. It's not what a brand strategy consultant does. But because I own co-own a company, yeah. I can do, I can tell to the most powerful people anything conceivable that I can do. Can you imagine my frustration of trying to go there and apply for some business development manager job in Canada? I mean, there is pride involved, but a lot outside of that also, it's like I don't actually get to do the bajillion things I actually am good at. Yeah, right. It's it's the kind of going to the complexity thing again, right? It, that's what you're good at. You're good at understanding it. You're good at navigating it. And then having to find something or opportunities and you're not challenged, right? I'm not challenged. I'm not compensated. I'm not visible. I'm not appreciated. I mean, the list is long, Martin. That's what I mean. Like, even listing is tough, right? Like, what what does that mean if I'm a a creative director on set, right? That's another another feel altogether, right? Or what if you do styling or for fashion? That's another feel altogether. Mm -hmm. The the list is actually like, but even having to even pay for the list for just this one role, right? Like right now, between the two of us, the list is long. Mm-hmm. Like not just hypothetical things I've already sold and done. Right? Yeah. And so, I mean, I do have, I do have a question that kind of leads from leads off from this, right? Um, but I don't want to cut this, cut the the experience short or is that or are we sort of at present day yeah i mean you know what it, it, yeah that's, i mean i mean i can keep going i mean like you know be, being here has i mean i also have a lot of privilege and access like uh, inherited relationships right that has looked like other things like you know i've just finished a fellowship with like our biggest independent press as an investigative journalist right i i was able to publish uh, a, a story on, on on land claims and and encroachment and ecological restoration. But it's like, again, it's like how much complexity there's really, I mean, even with this podcast, like no one is going to make it, I don't know, very few people are going to make it to, to this length, right? It's for the very reason is I don't, you know, someone might argue, right? Someone might argue is that I, I don't know what I'm, I'm good at. But then really my stern argument against them without trying to be too arrogant is if you have high aptitude, a high amount of curiosity and actually a diversity of experiences, it's just a case I'm, I'm going to keep doing more and more things. You it's not that I'm just looking there. for something. It's also the case of wanting to do more. Not that, I'm, not, that I'm seeking, not that I'm seeking and not finding. That's the difference, right? Sorry, you cut out completely there for a good, like, 10, 15 seconds. Hmm, Okay. Yeah, also the recording number has stopped uh, going on there on my side. Um, yeah, I'm, anyway. It's going. I'm hearing you. It's just my argument earlier was just saying that I think someone would make the argument that, that I don't know what I want to do. That's why I keep doing many things. Right, right, and I keep right. And I'm not finding, but I'm just making the argument in return. It could be the case that there are people who are actually good at multiple things and would like to continue to do contribute in multiple ways. And I guess, you know, that leads me to, to my question as far as what, what in your search, you know, forgetting about job descriptions, forgetting about being, you know, going through the traditional process. If, 
if you could really wave a magic wand and be in the the role of you know a role of true challenge and in, in, in interest you know what are some of those things that you're looking for hmm yeah this this has been uh, for obvious reasons a, a quite quite a ch challenging question for me right uh, Martin um, because I also need help by people like you. You've actually mentioned earlier, we talk about the really best recruiters actually helping individuals also find what they're best at. Or, or in some cases, people with problems telling stories, helping them tell stories, right? And so there always is going to be a weight of, you know, I can tell you so many of my jobs I've gotten come, come through pitching, right? But yeah, sometimes I think the ideation process can be, can be and maybe even should be collaborative as opposed to just driven by the person who has less of the power trying to convince someone who has all the power, right? And so, you know, the, the extent of the roles that I currently am interviewing for, you know, range from like a VP of qualitative research to a, you know, director of verbal strategy to a, whatever, a senior manager that's innovation consulting for a couple of Fortune 500 companies. Like, they really have varied greatly um, and uh, to different levels of, 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 of success. And the ones I'm describing, obviously, are ones uh, uh, that I have had uh, the fortune of, of interviewing at or currently being, being a review at. And so actually, I, I actually do have a problem answering, answering this question, also because it's the end of the podcast and I feel a pressure of having to be concise. So I, I don't, you know, maybe this is the conclusion that you want to get to. Is I, 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 I am unable to give you a couple of lines of what I'm looking for, right? Uh, you know, what does that look like? Intellectually challenging, uh, di diverse aptitudes that are required, probably an element of coaching uh, juniors involved. That would, that would be great. Again, public facing external stakeholder management is something if you want to use me for that, probably is a good idea. Um, mm -hmm. You know, obviously the, the word thrown around a lot is strategy. It means you have to give me a senior enough role to be able to do strategy if you really, really want uh, all that brain juice to be used for something of consequence. <laughs> why, why have the ability to have high abstract intelligence and have whole complex ideas in one space at one time if you're going to do, if you're going to just do an execution job? Yeah. Like, well, a part of me, part of me would argue that it is so rare to encounter someone, and I'm not trying to pump your tires or or flatter you. It's just like it's rare that people encounter someone with as diverse experience and intellect and all of these things. It 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 becomes difficult to well, you know, how do I place you? Not as a candidate, but just where do I play? Like in you know. It's, and they, it kind of, I don't know, are you okay sharing your Twitter or your, your, your handle? Because that, that actually stood out to me when we first met. Really? Oh my goodness. I think it's such a poor representation of myself. My Twitter is not used at all. I haven't used it for three years. Uh, not your Twitter, but the handle itself. Oh, 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 I see. So I guess my, whatever, the moniker I use uh, or the alias that I use is uh, always an alien. Uh, yeah, and it's because you know usually it's it's meant. Uh, I have historically used it for reasons of always feeling like like the other, 
in every country that I've lived in, I've always been a visible minority and an outsider. But then you could also argue that same, it's a beautiful and, and tragic uh, a moniker because um, it also applies professionally and intellectually, right? Is this mm-hmm. sense of alienation by not being understood, valued, uh, or, or cherished enough, I guess. Right? I'm not, not trying to make this a pop story, really, but look at the difficulties that Martin, a seasoned professional, is having, even after listening to me for over two hours, of trying to attempt to help me describe what I look for. I have a one-pager for you, if you want. You know, it's, it's, it's broken up into uh, five parts. <laughs> very very well, professional, right? But in, in defense of myself, which I should do some of in this podcast, <laughs> is I, I was joking with a friend uh, who I've known for 20 years, and the the friendship has evolved to the point where neither of us really need to know much about what's actually tangibly going on in one another's life. Mm. Um, and I haven't known you for 20 years, but, you know, I was a good friend. I'd known him for 20 years and I didn't even know he'd become an uncle in the last year. Right. Because what we talk about and, you know, what we get up to and when we do end up hanging out or having conversations isn't, doesn't enter into the realm of, you know, casual catching up chit chat usually. Right. And it was just like, Oh, I didn't know that. And I'm like, Oh, did you know about this about, and it turns out we know nothing about each other. Wow. Um, which is interesting. And, and so we have a very narrow realm of things that we talk about, which we find fascinating, but I also would sit here and call him. He is my, you know, my best friend kind of thing. And it was just sort of funny in the way, you know, we just took a moment to pause and realize what sort of, you know, at what level and depth do, do, does the friendship go to? And it didn't really bother us. Like, we're not, you know, it's like, oh, we can't be friends anymore or anything right. like that. But it was just an interesting thing. And so maybe that's something I've become accustomed to myself personally, right? Is like, I don't go deep with people. I just let intuition guide to a certain sense and maybe my intuition's a bit further or maybe it's completely flawed and this just highlights a bunch of you know terrible unconscious biases or something like that i don't know um yeah no so i guess that's my an attempt to defend myself with not being not not having gone deep with you but oh you have um, though though. i mean i shouldn't say you haven't martina i I just don't 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 say yourself short there man i mean that was not the point of you definitely go deep best as you can every time i see you man like you're not just like dinking around i mean yeah you're uh, <laughs> no 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 but i mean and so yeah like me asking you know what you're looking for next and in finding it difficult to like put into words i mean definitely not as a recruiter it's not my place and as a friend you know you know i don't again, I don't know you well enough was like, what's the next thing? And the one thing that I do tell people, and, and maybe this will be of value to the listeners is like, I always refer back to the the Japanese philosophy of Ikigai, which is sort of the yeah. four, four circles overlapping each other. And I would just Google it uh, rather than explaining it right now. And, and, you know, it, it's just the philosophy of how to, you know, define what's important in your life and sort of, head towards that and ultimately you will find more happiness than, than the average person kind of thing. Um, what's nice is, is this conversation has given me a few ideas that I definitely want to talk to you about offline, but I mean, 
I mean, what's nice as well is we've managed to define, or I've managed to define some, some superpowers, um, and, and ways that I can use to introduce you. But I guess maybe if we're thinking in terms of like closing thoughts and if, if anybody's managed to listen for this long, where, what do you want to leave with them? Yeah. I mean, closing thoughts. I, I mean, again, I, I feel like you're giving me this platform to just give me my pitch, right? And, I, and I'm really not giving you an answer, right? That's essentially the last five minutes. Yeah, well, we can talk about that after the podcast, but... I mean, <laughs> I'm the, joking, I'm joking. The, uh, the anecdote I really want to share, which I think we've got a natural place to, to share, and I think now is the time to share it. Maybe I can close with this. I wasn't planning to close with this. Is I've been having calls with people in North America. Uh, I, I try to have two to four calls every day. I keep... My full day in Malaysia, then I keep 8 p.m. to 12 a.m., which is your your 8 a.m. to 12 p.m. EST every single day, right? It means I keep your morning, I keep your half day. And I talk to so many people now in the space of nine weeks in my attempt to transition back to Malaysia, to Canada, sorry. And two days ago, I probably had the most meaningful call with a relative stranger uh, in the nine weeks, but also arguably also arguably possibly one of my best professional calls of, of, of my lifetime. Similar to like the first time I met you, it's like, oh, you didn't know like an incredible, like I didn't know I was going to be at a wedding after meeting you for a business meeting, right? Mm. So this time, I just want to share this story really quickly um, yeah. because it also shows what it looks like to ask the right questions. And some of the questions she asked me have not been asked by anybody else and have not been asked by you, in fact, uh, today. Maybe you asked me in private before. Um, and so... She is a very, very senior ex-civil servant, right? Uh, you know, whatever, been on the sunshine list for many years. It's towards the end of her career. She just left her role to, uh, in her words, um, as I've discerned, to move away from the realm of reform to enter in the realm of revolution, right? Meaning to have actual real impact on structural change before she retires, as opposed to like essentially playing it safe and trying to just incremental reform for like what for her maybe like four decades or something. She's 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 senior, right? Uh, she came to me as a referral through another individual that was referred to me, who is a director at an educational uh, uh, arm of the government. Okay, and and in this call, uh, let me try to recap what happened. First off, the important thing is that we both cried in this call. This is a stranger I have just met for a half an hour call, right? We ended up being an hour long call. Um, we, we are both in tears. And it comes back to the sort of questions that she's asked me. Really, I think she was crying because she heard the fact that presumably she had already qualified me through the referral and through conversation with me and through seeing my work perhaps online that I was a individual of quality, right? Whatever, to her, I was capable, right? And she was crying, she started crying first because she heard that every single job I had to get came through a non-conventional HR process. It means every single job I've applied to, I have not gotten, essentially what that means, right? I have to go through unconventional means like pitching, or by specifically a white person referring me through the back door, right? Mm -hmm. She was in tears by that. 
and that was a sign of vulnerability and honesty that unlocked what was the rest of our conversation. I'm not saying everyone should cry, um, but vulnerability to say that you can actually be yourself. And I believe you, again, the I believe you part, like she sees the injustice. She felt emotion because she was angered by the injustice. She works towards that actively of dismantling that power. Sure, she probably knows other people in the space, so it triggered her there too. But essentially, the rest of the call was really not about me convincing her about how valuable I am, how visible I should be, which is 99% of my calls, right? Even the way people ask the question, what are you looking for? It's like, let me, let, please do all the thinking by yourself about where you will fit in someone's hole, right? Even the nature of the question, right? So it was very interesting because I just want to share that with you because I, I think I've made a friend and an ally for life just by an hour-long conversation. Mm-hmm. Talking about very, very honest things, which I never get to speak to recruiters or professionals about in general. Nothing to do with recruitment specifically, just the professional world, the malaise of the professional, the sickness of the professional world. Of mm-hmm. keeping it on the surface. Nothing vulnerable, nothing personal, nothing real. Even the things that are real aren't really that real, if that makes sense, right? So even things like diversity and inclusion, things like all this, you know, about migrant stories, all of it is actually really on the surface, Right? And vulnerability isn't seen as something, a quality or value. And that's the word for it, quality and values. That is something we've not even spoken about. Again, not, not putting you down again. Honestly, you've given me so much time. But just think about the natural inclination for us to ask questions. We don't ask these things. And that's why that conversation we've heard, talk about superpowers, here's another one. Right? Discernment, recall, perceptiveness of mission and values. That's so clearly my motivation, and, and it should be many people's motivation that I try to get out of them. So she left the call, right? She asked me, you know, Andrew, I have some sense. Here's where I see you in the not-for-profit world. That's great. I've, I found your little hole for you. I can sell you. Give me X amount of time. You're good. I'll, I'll, I'm going to... And she even, like, whatever. She's still very influential. She, you know, she can pick up a phone and a, whatever. Any of, whatever. Many, many bots will still pick up a call. So essentially, that's the impression she gave me. But most importantly, she left this question with me. It's like, I want you to, I want you to get back to me, which some people do. They ask me, can you get back, get, get back to me with a couple of blurbs? It's like, get back to me with what you really want, right? So similar to the question you asked, right? And I asked her, okay, um, hey, my name's Fiona. Are you asking me this? I'll be very transparent, right? Because it was really such an honest conversation. I was like, can I be honest with you? Like, are you asking me this so that I can give you ammunition to sell me? So I can convince you or some other person in power why this person is actually worth their salt because they don't already believe me. And she said, no, it's absolutely nothing to do with that. I already believe you. I want you to tell me what you care about. Sure, you can tell me what you care about in terms of, you know, all these diverse things that you do, da 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 right? Give me the specifics of what you want to, you know, you want to do, but really, what do you care about? So what values do you care about? What causes do you care about? What missions do you care about? And then she puts in the weight, right? Again, as they referred, again, this is nothing to do with HR necessarily, to then synthesize that with her breadth of experience and knowledge, because all of us have more knowledge that the other individual may not have, right? 
like the acting of how empowering that is an experience for someone like myself in the position of seeking, but also as an outsider all my life, as a visible minority, person of color. So I see you, I believe you, you are valuable. It is unjust that you have not, yeah, it's so hard for you to find a role and then be able to do roles that actually are valuable, considering how valuable you are. Not only do I believe you, not only do I know what you're good at, because I've given you space to talk about it. Now I want to know how to apply that in something you care about. So you talk about Ikigai. Care about is one of the four circles in the Venn diagram. Yeah, exactly. I care about and society cares about. Consider how little the conversation about purpose, mission, and values, qualities, are spoke about in the HR world. If you want to only leave me one thing to talk to leave you with, it's not to give you the, the spiel about what I'm looking for. Because again, I think it should be a collaborative process. If not, I have my, I have my standard 30-second uh, answer for you. I do have that, right? But I think the more powerful thing would be to say, why are those questions? Why is that question not out? And there is the end of my answer. Uh, thanks for giving me the time. <laughs> no, that was a, it was a great story. And I'm, it, and you know, as we speak, it sounds like, you know, there's wheels turning in the background, potentially, hopefully slowly or, or, or quickly, hopefully. Um, and I think, I mean, I asked that question because it's the most popular question, but it's the most important question to me. And, and I think you're right in the sense that phrasing is important, right? Because you do have that prepared spiel, right? Of, well, here's, here's what they want to hear. And I think one of the things that, drew me to you and you know piqued my curiosity about who's this who's this individual right there's something unique about this person was your ability to break through what you described as the professional malaise right the there's this mask that we all wear in order to be professionals in north america or the world probably in general i don't have enough experience outside of north america to to, to comment on that, but there's this mask that we all wear of, hi, I'm Martin. I'm, I'm here. This is where I work. This is part, this is, this is my core. I do some things on this side and this is what I do, but rarely do things go into the realm of what do you believe philosophically? Do you think that the systems that are in place and the way business and countries and cities and all that stuff do we do we do you believe these things are right right and i mean that's why ikigai is fascinating to me is because it forces you to ask a few more important questions than you normally would because if you jump into the traditional rat race so to speak you're you're gonna get caught on that wheel and you're not going to ask any of the right questions. And I think you, you brought it up and called me out to a certain extent is that like people aren't asking the right questions <laughs> and right. I don't know. I don't know those words explicitly, but uh, you've inferred. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> 
So no, I mean, I don't know that there's, I don't, I don't want to wrap this up nicely with a bow and a lesson or anything like that. I do want to finish off with just uh, a reminder uh, of like my general gratitude that you take time out of your day to have this conversation with me and, and share your story. Um, yeah, no, thank you, Andrew. You're welcome. Thanks for uh, giving me the space. I feel like we could probably do many more of these <laughs> and, and go on many different tangents and, and who knows, we might do that. Um, for those of the listeners that have, have stuck around and if they want to get in touch with you to, to have a real conversation um, and, and see if they can either open doors or they have ideas on, on what you could bring to the table and, and are excited to speak with you, how would they find you? Um, you could find me through Martin or <laughs> as my name is very long and again, not very anglicized enough. It's uh, Andrew. It's Andrew. How Andrew is spelled tan, like tan in the sun. Um, w E I is way and A U N is un. Uh, you can find me on, on LinkedIn. I guess that'll be the best, best way. Yeah. Yeah. No, thanks again, Andrew. I appreciate it. So that concludes this uh, this podcast. That's uh, the first attempt at sort of doing a, a proper biography, audio biography on on an individual. This has been uh, you've been listening to from a people perspective, and I don't know that the the name could be any more apropos than than it is. I think I nailed it with naming this podcast if I do say so myself. And if you learned something today and you want to join an amazing Slack community of talented HR recruitment and operations professionals, see the mask is coming back on, Andrew, head on over to thepeoplepeoplegroup.com. It's completely free. Wait for it, Andrew. And it's completely awesome. (laughs) So thanks again for listening, everybody. Uh, And we'll see you next time.